0: Hey, listeners, I want to tell you about Music Masters Collective, a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. These events give you the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, North Mississippi All-Stars, Brother and Sister, Trouble No More, and many more. This July, Oteal Burbridge will host the 11th annual Roots Rock Revival, alongside an incredible group of musicians, for a five-day all-inclusive event unlike any other. This once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, masterclasses, song circles, collaborative jams, and so much more. Roots Rock Revival blends the experience of a festival with behind-the-scenes performances and invaluable education from music legends. You won't want to miss it. Packages range from tent camping to luxury cottages to everything in between. And scholarships are also available. Spots are extremely limited, so visit RootsRockRevival.com slash The Vault to learn more. That's RootsRockRevival.com slash The Vault. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year... And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: As
2: you've probably guessed about 240-something guys with the Grateful Dead podcast, both Steve and I are bearded gentlemen. But we're professional wooks, and we like to keep those beards sharp and clean. The thing is, when you're only shaving your neck, buying razors at the store especially feels like a hassle. That's why I'm excited about Harry's. I got a fancy new razor in the mail from Harry's, gave it a try, and it was a huge upgrade over my dirty old blade. The shaving gel was also a treat. I tend to be a stingy store brand X kind of guy, so using something with an actual scent and a smooth lather, it was like going to the barbershop. At a time when I'm really avoiding trips to the store, getting quality shaving supplies shipped to my house is a real luxury. Harry's gives you quality, durable blades at a fair price, just $2 a blade. The refills are delivered to you on your own schedule, with or without a subscription, which is great for us bearded dudes who don't need to buy new blades as often. They also have a 100% guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know, and you'll receive a full refund. And 1% of all Harry's proceeds go to nonprofits providing healthcare access for men and veterans. Now you can join the 10 million people who have tried Harry's with a special trial offer. Listeners can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash 36ftv You're going to get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip a five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go So go to harrys.com slash 36ftv to start shaving better today
3: Today I want to tell you about a brand new podcast that I'm really loving. It's called 27 Club, and it's hosted by Jake Brennan, the creator and host of Disgraceland, and iHeartRadio's 2020 Best Music Podcast winner. 27 Club tells the stories of musical icons who all died at the age of 27, and season one is all about Jimi Hendrix. Jimi died mysteriously at the age of 27, and he lived his life unlike any other. He was arguably the greatest rock and roll guitar player of all time, and he was a busy guy. Busy getting kidnapped, busy running from the mafia, busy stealing trucks with Neil Young, trying to get to Woodstock on time. Jimmy got busy with himself and got himself kicked out of the army. He was fired by Little Richard, arrested by Seattle cops and Canadian Mounties, doused with LSD by his manager on stage in front of thousands, and haunted by the ghost of the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones. All of these Jimi Hendrix stories and more are coming at you in Season 1 of The 27 Club. If you like Disgraceland, Jimi Hendrix, larger-than-life rock stars, or just plain old mystery and drama, then you're going to love The 27 Club. Subscribe to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: crisis we're facing right now has threatened the
1: livelihood and mental health of countless musicians. Backline is the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub, and their work is more vital than ever. Launched in 2019, Backline aims to give artists, crew,
3: and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources.
1: Backline is currently hosting virtual support groups as well as yoga, meditation, and breathwork sessions. Osiris is proud to partner with Backline. To donate, learn more, or to get in touch for personalized care, visit backline.care. Again, that's backline.care.
3: So here we are. We're going to be talking about uh, April 4th, 1998, continuing with the Island Tour.
2: Island Tour Night 3. Oh, so much to talk about. (laughs) I mean, we could go for hours on this one, too. We got a tweezer opener. We We
3: got... Oh, my God.
2: One of the best tastes they've ever played. I mean,
3: the... Yeah, I'm just glad... I'm just relieved that we don't have to talk about Dick's Picks anymore, that we can just talk about fish, you know, because that's what we've always wanted to do anyway. Exactly. Yeah. a couple... (laughs) Because we're not really fans of The Grateful Dead anyway. It's just all been a ruse. It's an elaborate ruse to get to this point, to transition, pull the switcheroo on everybody. That's right. Do a fish podcast.
2: All those people were on to us when they said they uh, <laughs> these guys don't like The Grateful Dead. We almost let it slip. Yep. Talking about how half-step is not a good song. Like, you know, we, <laughs> yep. we were bad yep. early Weather on. And, sweet. Uh, but it's just been an elaborate ruse. We recorded 12 hours of dead content just to, to trick you into... Listening to yet another Fish yeah, the, podcast.
3: You know, there were moments where I thought, this isn't worth it. This is like a lot of effort for this ruse. Right. But now I feel like it was worth it. It feels very delicious right now. Yeah. Like we we pulled off like a great... It's like a great bank robbery, you it, know?
2: It was like Andy Kaufman-esque, right? Like, <laughs> he's still going to come back and say that he's been alive all these years. It's just been, th- you know, the real long game.
3: Oh... Uh, all right, we should stop this now. We're we're joking, of course.
1: <laughs> yeah, this we're will not going to talk
2: about fish. Yeah, I I can almost assure you that this will be fish-free. Though there was one thing that I might bring him up for, but ninety-nine percent fish-free episode of Fish from the Vault. Yep.
3: And you know we're we're recording this before the fish episode goes up, so we're not sure exactly how people are going to react. Um, you know, maybe this episode won't even air because people have protested that episode so much that <laughs> the podcast will be canceled. Osiris will pull the plug on us. But I don't know. I, I have faith that like we, you know, we talked a lot about the dead in that episode. I think the idea was to talk about the dead, but to look at it from a different perspective. And I think we were able to do that, you know, from the perspective of fish, how fish was influenced by the dead and how they weren't influenced by the dead and the jam scene connections. Uh, between those two groups but uh now we're going back into dead world and we're yeah. going deep into dead world in this episode
2: yeah oh yeah we're diving back and, I, and it's almost like you know the end of a uh, extended vacation because there wasn't only the fish episode but you know also a couple episodes of brent era dead which is you know a different kind of dead uh but now we're uh we're ready to dive back in the deep end i think
3: so that's right you know it's it reminds me of like that episode of Lost where they're like, "We got to go back to the island." You know, <laughs> that's what we're doing in this episode. We're going back to seventies dead, old school dead. We got Keith and Donna back in the fold. Uh, I'm excited to get into it. Yeah. So... Uh, by the way, yeah, this is 36 from the Vault, presented by Osiris, and uh, I'm Steve.
2: And I'm Rob. Happy to be back uh, talking about the great Dead. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and I'm always excited when we remember to uh, introduce ourselves. Yeah, I feel like that's always a very problematic part of the episode for us. But like, when we can actually say our own names, I feel like that's a good omen. You know, we're talking about '70s Dead. We got Keith and Donna back. We said our names at the top of the episode. I think this is going to be a good ep. We mentioned
2: Osiris. We can shout, Osiris. Out, shout out all our other boys real quick. We got Amar on the music. We got Brian on the production. We got Matt Dwyer on ma- mastering. We got... Who else we got?
3: <laughs> we, got, we, got we got Rex Jackson for, <laughs> lugging our gear around. We got
2: Ramrod. <laughs> we got uh, Sam Cutler, road manager.
3: That's beautiful. The Living gang's all van. back together. Going back, We went from the island... To, we did the island tour, but now we're going back to the island. The What's dead that? island. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and also England. England island.
3: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> we're talking
2: about so, Dix Picks 7 this episode. September 9th, yes. 10th, and 11th. That's three shows. 1974. At the Alexandra Palace in London, England. And, yeah, the uh, first there's a, there's um, the first
3: discuss. foreign show. The first foreign show of of the Dix Picks. That's true. Overseas. Uh, w- yeah, we're, we're going international here. And uh, I'm excited to get into this. I mean, you know... We talk a lot about um, our favorite Dix Picks. You know, we've only done seven so far. We're about to do seven. Um, I'm pretty enthusiastic about this about this edition, though. You know, we, we kind of have Dix Picks 4 at the top so far. Um, seven, though, I think was is really strong. And, of course, we've got some other really strong Dix Picks on the near horizon. But, uh, you know, and I don't know if I'm just like judging it that way because you know we were just in the brent era and, and again i love the brent era i love i love the 80s dead i love you know that specific like all the specific attributes of that era of the dead but man going back to the 70s it was strong i mean we talked about whiplash going into the brent era this was like a like a positive whiplash it was like uh it really blew my hair back listening yeah. to this record
2: And I feel like it was another place where the, the fish episode helped a little bit. Cause it kind of like, wasn't a direct dive from 83 back to 74. Like we had sort of a distraction for a little bit, but yeah, I think maybe like five seconds in, I was like, it, it was like I had returned back into uh, <laughs> like a, a warm bath <laughs> after, uh, you know, some episodes like, and you know, I I'll say it again. I, that, this, like, deep dive into Brent era, like, definitely made me appreciate that era a lot more. Was skeptical about it going in, but I, I, I there's there's a lot I, to like, I think, now about the Brent era for me. Uh, but, you know, I had my, my guard up and I was stealing myself and, like, working hard to, like, you know, not fall back on the easy things to uh, be annoyed by in that era. And stealing myself and trying to stay positive. And then you get a set like this where, like, I mean, I could... We could just spend three hours going, oh, yeah, that track was great. Oh, yeah, that track was great, too. <laughs> well, so yeah,
3: Exactly. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's a slight to the Brent era to say that it's not as good as 1974. I mean, 1974 is in the running for maybe the single greatest year in dead history. Right. You know, if you were going to, like list your favorite years like 74 would be in the mix for a lot of people and and with good reason. And that was true for Dick too, wasn't it? I mean, wasn't this his favorite year or, or among his favorite years?
2: Yeah, like he had a quote that was something along the lines of if if it were up to him, he would just release 1973 and 1974 shows, every volume of Dick's Picks. And, you know, it's a, it's a reminder that though the name of the series was Dick's Picks, he wasn't the only guy picking the shows and making the decisions. And he had to spread it around a little bit. And he played good company man and listened to the fans and dropped a couple Brent shows in there. And this really feels like the reward for doing a couple Brent shows for the fans. The old, like, one for you, one for me. In this case, two for you, one for me. Where he got to just pick, like, his favorite, favorite era, of the dead. And, you know, do a lot of, like... uh you know, curation, too, like boiling down three shows into three discs of highlights. Uh, So you feel Dick's fingerprints all over this one, I think, more so than anything maybe in the series so far.
3: And I have to say that, you know, as much as we, I think, prefer to listen to a complete show, um, I think Dick did a pretty good job of curating this set. There's things that he left out, and we'll get into it in this episode, that I would have loved to have in the, you know, in the collection, but, um, overall, I mean, I think he did, I think pretty well at like picking the highlights of this one. Yeah. I mean, don't, don't you think?
2: Yeah. And we'll chat about it, but these shows are like, if, if you listen to the entire shows, they're a little bit uneven and not, we're not especially highly regarded by Deadheads, I think before this set came out. So he actually kind of did have to like turn what was sort of, uh, I guess lower quality product into, a uh, a higher quality synopsis. Uh and yeah, it's fascinating how he kind of captured the feel of an actual full show without presenting a full show. Uh so it's, you know, uh, a tip of the hat to Dick for, for doing a really nice job with this
3: one. So this record was released on March fourth, nineteen ninety seven, and this was a time like when the Grateful Dead there wasn't a lot going on in Dead World at this time. Obviously Jerry had died a few years earlier the further festival was about to take place that summer and that included Bob Weir's band Rat Dog, Mickey Hart's band Planet Drum, and Bruce Hornsby was on that tour as well. There were also other jam and jam adjacent bands of that time, like I know the Black Crows were on that tour. I can't think of other, I don't know if like Blues Traveler was on that tour or not, but um the other ones which was the first sort of post dead incarnation that included Weir and Hart and Hornsby that would form the following year after this uh, but Phil and Friends wasn't on the road at this time you know so like a like an album like this i mean it meant a lot i think to dead fans i mean because we weren't yet in an era where you could go see these guys all that easily or or at least people playing dead music
2: yeah i mean they tried to keep things afloat but the organization really was the band members were really going in different directions at this time. Like Phil, I think his health problems were really accelerating. He had his liver transplant in 98. So he wasn't wanting to do a bunch of road shows. And I think he was just kind of like tired of the grind. And yeah, it was like uh, the further festival is kind of fascinating. I went to one of them, um, that first year where it was headlined by rat dog. And, uh, Mickey's Planet Drum, and Bruce Hornsby, and Los Lobos, and I think I saw Hot Tuna as well. Some incarnation of Hot Tuna was at that show. So, and it was just kind of weird. It was kind of like everybody felt like we had to do something dead related this summer, and we're going to go through the motions of like the lot scene, and you know getting dressed up and getting high on whatever and listening to this but it was clear that it was sort of like a methadone version of the dead <laughs> where it was you know just the minimally amount of satisfying without really giving you that kick i remember hornsby being probably the best los logos being the best and both rat dog and Mickey being pretty disappointing uh but i did actually i never got to see the actual dead so it was kind of like hey those are real members of the Grateful Dead up there. This is kind of cool. Uh, but, you know, certainly not as satisfying as the other ones or the dead or Phil and Friends or Fairly Well or all the other <laughs> various dead and company, uh, it, you know, revivals we've had since.
1: You're playing cold music on the barroom floor. You're drowning your laughter, but you're dead to the car. There's a dragon with matches, these moves on the town. Take a whole hell of water, just a
3: cool hand down. Well, and you know, we talked about this in the fish episode, but there really was this like post Jerry void that existed in the late 90s. Not just with the dead, but like in the jam scene overall. And I have to think that, like, the other guys in the band, there must have been some awkwardness or uncertainty of, like, how do you carry on without Jerry? Is it offensive to play this music without him? You know, are the fans going to accept it? It seems like there was a period of confusion for those guys, which is very understandable, you know, in the those few years after Jerry died and of course they eventually got over that right? (laughs) you know and they've carried on with Jerry for for many years Um, the big thing uh, aesthetically with the Dick's Picks Volume 7 was they changed the cover art this was the going from the red and black of the first six volumes to well like on the cover of Volume 7 it's like this magic carpet that's made to look like a ticket stub and there's like this sort of like blue sky in the background and i feel like the Dix picks covers i think they change every seven albums or so
2: yeah or every half dozen and,
3: yeah yeah half dozen or, or maybe and i feel like each progression of covers like gets progressively worse <laughs> as we go along like I, I personally i like the red and black the 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 you know like the same red and black cover right Uh, it's beautiful it's like the ampex
2: tapes so it's like a riff on like the the brand of real to real tapes that a lot of the tapes in the vault were the only thing that like is difficult with those and i can kind of get this even in like a streaming age is that it's you know pretty much impossible to tell them apart from a distance (laughs) so you like they maybe they should have mixed up the color scheme or something but you know, when I'm, when I'm searching Dick's Picks and Spotify or whatever, the first six are pretty much indistinguishable in their little like thumbnail version, unless you are like hovering over. So they had to mix it up a little bit, but you know, these sort of like early days of CGI graphics they chose, while I will admit very appropriate to like dead aesthetic, <laughs> like lot aesthetic, um, you know lots of skeletons and fractals and tie dye and mystical yeah flying carpets I'm not really sure where the flying carpets link in but whatever uh yeah it's uh it's a step down for sure and you know honestly the grateful dead have gotten a lot better in their archival releases with cover art lately there's been some really beautiful sets oh, yeah. lately Um and then even like the the Ready or Not compilation which came out had some pretty like wretched cover (laughs) art. But but somebody like pointed out to me when I was like making fun of it on Twitter that it pretty much looks exactly like something you would buy on lot in the nineties, which is the era it's supposed to represent. So even that I was kinda like, all right, yeah, it's a skeleton wearing sunglasses they announced it with like a, yeah, a right. gif of like the skeletons like sunglasses going up and down like uh.
3: <laughs> was he like and is isn't he like looking over his shoulder and like lowering the sunglasses too or like i feel like they're it's like he's doing like one of those like kind of sassy like 80s kid yeah. type poses where or like the risky business yeah like oh that's a sass that's a sassy skeleton <laughs> <laughs> lowering the sunglasses <laughs> Um, I got, but like Dave's picks covers are beautiful. Like the Dave's pick series, like they have really cool covers. Yeah. Those so are like, nice. yeah. So, 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 the Dave's picks, they got it together with the cover art, but you know, we had to kind of work through that in the Dick's pick. You know, I, I kind of like the psychedelic colors ones that they did, I think starting around 14 or so where, where it's like black on the bottom and there's sort of like this like psychedelic like a screensaver on, like, on the top half. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I like that. I think I might like that more than this like next series of six or seven that we're going to be going through yeah. in terms of the cover art. But uh, we'll say, you know, magic carpet that looks like a ticket stub. It's it's okay. I think there's probably worse covers right. uh, coming up ahead. Um, so – as we said, this is a compilation of, of three different shows. And it, we're going to get into this. I, I think that we both agreed that September 11th would have been the show to release as a complete show if they were going to do one. Yeah. Um, although I, I understand why they didn't do that. Right. I mean, I think it's an interesting show, but... Maybe potentially alienating for people <laughs> uh, f- for for one big reason. Yeah, it's a, uh, a in the middle of it a
2: bridge too far, even for you know at this point where the Dick's Pick series was pretty well established. Like, yeah, it's hard to imagine them putting out that show in its entirety. Uh, and and you know, it also I think you know beyond just the quality of the shows, I think there were tape quality issues as well. Um, as I said, I listened to all three of these shows, and I listened to the Charlie Miller. Uh, transfers, which are generally going to be the gold standard for what sources are out there. And there's a lot of like audience tape patches and things in these shows. So even having like complete performances would have been tricky uh, if they wanted to pick one of these shows. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it, it you know, it circles back to volume four where it's a little different circumstances because in that case, Dick was dealing with shows where that had already partially been released and the bear's choice compilation. Uh, but, uh, you know, kind of like, let's take a particular run of the dead and just sort of represent the highlights of it. Uh, you know, the, the purist in me wants full shows, but like Dick said, if you want, even back then, if you wanted full shows, you could probably find the tapes. Now we can queue up archive and hear eight different sources of full shows, every full show you can think of. So, uh, you know I, I I've come to appreciate this format yeah for uh yeah pres- get, capturing the spirit of it if not you know providing every single note
3: well, and again, like as you said, you know these shows weren't particularly well regarded by fans at the time, and I feel like even in the band, you know the band didn't really like this tour very much I mean we talk about the europe seventy two no. tour obviously being an historic tour for the dead and it seems like for the band you know they've described it that tour is like a working vacation. It seems like they had a really good time and they were playing really well, whereas this tour was work. And it seems to have contributed to the burnout that the band was going through at the time that eventually causes them to stop touring for about, I guess, what is it, like a year and a half or so. Um,
2: Yeah, 74 is such an interesting year in that regard that, it's very highly regarded. It has some of the most like iconic Grateful Dead moments and events. Uh, but at the same time, it was like the year that drove them into essentially breaking up. They didn't know if they were going to get back together. It looks like a hiatus now. But they, things got so bad and stressful by the end of the year that they had to take time off and sort of circle the wagons and regroup so uh and yeah this europe trip seemed like a pretty terrible idea in a lot of ways (laughs) and uh almost was one of the straws that broke the camel's back uh if not the last straw because yeah after this europe show you have the winterland farewell shows and that's it until 75 the sort of uh, show here and there in 75 and the full comeback in 76.
3: And of course those uh, those shows at Winterland were filmed for the Grateful Dead movie which was a huge financial suck for the band and that ended up paving the way for them coming back because they essentially had to come back because they were broke after that movie. So, you know, it, <laughs> yeah. it all comes back around for the dead. Um, so, let's set up uh, these shows a little bit. Now, the big... Thing yeah. that had happened in terms of albums at this time is that The Dead put out uh, Mars Hotel and uh, it was June of 74 and mm-hmm. uh, the two big songs from that record that are going to show up in this show are Scarlet Begonia's and U.S. Blues um, in terms of Dead albums from this period I'm, I'm okay by this record it's not one of my favorites I, the, the album after this Blues for Allah I think is much stronger than this record mm-hmm. uh there are some like obviously great songs on this record the you know the two that we mentioned there's ship of fools there's uh, unbroken chain um it also has money money on there which is a pretty terrible song <laughs> uh i mean that's... possibly one of the worst
2: steve money money or keep your day job you have to pick one
3: well it's funny because we've had this debate d- recently uh, One to keep. And I I feel like money money, I mean, did they ever play that live? I mean, they didn't play it live very often, did they? I mean I, I I think they did it like
2: like a handful of times and then recognized that it was trash.
3: Yeah, I mean I feel like uh man, I don't know. That that's a real Sophie's choice of shit right there. <laughs> I don't know. Like what would you pick? <laughs> what would you pick out of those? Probably
2: keep your day job. Yeah. Uh in the like sense that it is just kinda like Harmless fun, I don't
3: know, oh, so you'd pick that that's the song you would keep not thats not, I would keep keep your day job you know. yeah
2: keep i I'm, I'm keeping my day
3: job <laughs> so not a terribly strong album, but it does give us um certainly Scarlet Pagonia as being one of the most reliable war horses for the dead, and as well as u s blues, which yeah. um became you know, during this era like a a go to show closer. And I feel like yeah. I feel like there's I, like various opinions on that. I've I've never minded U.S. Blues. I've always enjoyed that song, especially as an. Auto, you know, yeah, like I'd rather them play that than like a couple Chuck Berry covers at the end of a set. You know.
2: Yeah. No, I think U.S. Blues is great. I find it like very like iconically dead in a right. I don't because like the Dead, we've you know we've talked about how they're the greatest American band and like the 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 key word in their you know, is American, not just reflecting their nationality, but also, like, something about the way the existence of the dead and how they came together and how they unfolded is just, like, purely American. So a song like U.S. Blues, which is kind of, like, cynically patriotic, is sort of a perfect song for them to play, I think. And it's not, you know... It's a pretty straight ahead song in a lot of ways, but it's it's catchy. It could have been a good single for them. It's kind of surprising to me that that didn't really take off like a Casey Jones yeah, you know, sort of song.
3: It's funny cuz like as much as, you know, we associate the Dead with the counterculture and, you know, I guess leftist type thought in America, they're not a, an especially political band necessarily. And you know, that song isn't like overtly political in terms of, like, sloganeering or anything, but, you know, the fact that you'd play this snarky song about America during the same summer that, like, Richard Nixon's presidency was winding down, and he ended up resigning um, that August, it seems like a little shot at that, too. You know, America was not at the, at its brightest at that moment, so, you know, dead taking the piss out of America, I can get behind that. Um,
2: Yeah. And then, uh, they play it all, maybe all three nights in England, at least two of the three nights. So yeah, it's it, kind of funny to take that song over to Europe as well, which is a nice uh, little twist on it. On
3: foreign soil, taking shots
2: at America. Yeah. Man. Yeah, and Mars Hotel, just to say, like, I, I I think it's actually a pretty fascinating album, and it's produced really interestingly. And you know, part of that is that they had our boy Ned Lakin on it. Oh, yeah. Uh, which we'll be talking about dead quite a bit in this episode. Uh, like the unbroken chain has some really crazy synthesizer stuff going on in it. It has, you know, weirdly two Phil songs out of eight songs, I believe. Uh, so it kind of reflects that Phil had a very prominent role in the band at this era too. Uh, and it also was, we should say a grateful dead records release, which another reason the grateful dead movie was one reason for the bankruptcy. The, them starting their own record label which they thought sounded like a great idea because they'd get all the money uh from record sales uh didn't really work out that way and the fact that u.s blues never caught on as a single uh i think kind of helped put another nail in the coffin of the dead's finances at this stage so an interesting album but maybe not the commercially successful album they needed because the material kind of wasn't there
3: yeah and you know and Talking about, you know, financial strains on the dead in 74, I feel like, you know, as, we're, as we as just transition here to talking about the European tour, I mean, you got to talk about the wall of sound. You know, the wall of sound being right. a huge part of dead lore. You know, I love how in uh, the documentary, Long Strange Trip, how there's significant time given to the dead sound system. You know, of course, that being the wall of sound. It's like how many other... Band documentaries or any other band documentary actually talks about like the sound equipment, you know, in the documentary. (laughs) I mean, that is like, I feel like that's one of the many things that makes the dead unique. But obviously the wall of sound is an iconic part of dead history in this year and uh, an incredibly innovative system that also was totally impractical and eventually (laughs) made it impossible for them to tour. Right.
2: Right. And it like it, it it laid the groundwork for basically what we know of know how we know of live concert sound today. Um, I know Jesse Darno's written some really great articles about this, like the sort of technological pioneer side of the Grateful Dead. Uh, but yeah, the wall of sound it's it's just a beautiful object. I love. I can never get sick of looking at pictures of this monstrous thing (laughs) hanging precariously above their heads it's like six i mean it's like it's like literally
3: like 600 speakers it's like like dozens upon dozens of tons like 75 tons or something just ridiculous yeah and so our, our good
2: buddy owsley was sort of the mastermind of the wall of sound but had a lot of help from other other guys on the dead sound team the guys that did alembic guitars were involved uh and the idea was Owsley had this vision that he wanted to realize of a distortion-free sound system uh, that would, you know, carry sound for something like a quarter of a mile away from the stage. And somebody standing a quarter of a mile away would hear it just as clear as somebody standing right in front of the stage, if not as loud. But they would hear, be able to clearly hear all the instruments Uh, even if you were at the back of some crazy huge crowd. Uh, And he also wanted it to design it so that the band didn't have to use monitors, uh, and they would just hear the sound that was coming out behind them. So what they were hearing was the same thing that the fans were hearing. He wanted a sound system where you could separate out everybody's instruments, and sometimes even down to like individual parts of instruments. Like Phil had different speakers for each of his strings on his bass, <laughs> in addition to like some sort of quadraphonic setup. Uh, Billy's drums, like each one had its own microphone and its own speaker somewhere in the wall of sound. I mean, it's like it's like a Willy Wonka version of a sound system and it's amazing that it existed for a year and that they actually gave it a go and carried it around the country and even over to europe whether that was a good idea or not i don't know but it seems insane uh, yeah, as you said to bring
3: this to you totally
2: impractical took took they basically had to rent the venue for an extra day to set it up Uh, before they could play at that venue Uh, if you look at like the list of shows in 1974 they didn't play that many shows for such an iconic year and a a year where you would think they would be quite busy and on the road a lot Uh, but it was a little bit of a down year and i think this is why like just logistically it was impossible and they had to employ 50 people to and you know a squadron of trucks to take it around the country and essentially, you know, helped bankrupt the band and they had to go away for a while. So, you know, kind of a ironic uh, development in, in Grateful Dead lore.
3: Yeah. There's a, there's a Bob Weir interview they did in, in 2011 with Rolling Stone, where he talks about how, you know, we were selling at hockey arenas and we were barely breaking even, you know, cause they were paying, you know, they, he said that there were like 40 people that they were paying, at this point, like, on their crew, just because they had so much equipment. They had carpenters, and they had, you know, just all these other, you know, it it wasn't like the small crew of roadies that they started out with. It was like this army of people. And not only was that a financial strain on the band, but it also created this, like, insane circus-like environment around the band, where you basically have all of these, like, crazy dudes on the road, and it just compounded the bad behavior that was happening around the band. Yeah. it's Cause you can't manage all these insane people in your crew. Um, so it, it just fed into what was already turning into a toxic situation in terms of drug use in the band. And there's like some really funny stories about like the European tour in particular being like a breaking point with the band at that point. Like, you know, like Rex Jackson being like one of the original, like, Grateful Dead roadies are, like, the you know, like, the most famous of, like, their dudes, like, from the early 70s. Um, there's a story about him, like, getting really angry about all the, like, cocaine use that was happening around the dead at this time, and, like, how he, like, literally, he, he gathered up all this coke that he could find, and he threw it into a garbage can, and he lit it on fire. And, <laughs> and basically, that lasted for about 20 minutes, and then <laughs> they were able to find more cocaine after that. Like and, uh, when I read that story, right. that story is in David Brown's book, um, which we reference that in every episode. If you don't have it, I'd recommend buying it or getting it from the library. It's, it's, it's a great book. Yeah. Um, so many roads by David Brown. So many yeah. roads. But like, uh, I always wonder like, was it filled to the brim with cocaine? Was it like halfway full? <laughs> like, cause it's like, how big was the garbage can? I mean, that seems like a lot of cocaine. Um,
2: is cocaine even flammable? Like, can you just toss a match in a pile of cocaine and it lights on fire?
3: I don't know. I mean, it seems like you could just like flush it or something, or you could dump. It. I mean, basically, if you just dump it on the ground, <laughs> it's like unusable. You know, it seems like lighting on fire. They
2: should have dumped it in the River Thames. They were in England,
3: so. <laughs> so and uh, although apparently, um, like Phil wasn't doing cocaine. Like, yeah. like, like, Ned Lagan, uh, there's a quote from him. Um, I think it's in the, the David Gans Blair Jackson book, um, which we also reference all the time in the show, but he said that him and Phil were doing LSD all the time on on this right. tour.
2: It seemed like it was very much like a crew versus the band thing where the crew was doing a lot of coke, which kind of makes sense. Cause they had to spend like 24 consecutive hours setting up this monstrous sound system. Yeah. They couldn't so sleep. it it's a very good uh, productive drug, I guess. Uh, I also read somewhere that they went, they had like recruited a bunch of volunteer crew members while they were on the Europe tour and basically just paid them in drugs to help them set up the wall of sound, which sounds like a great way to run an operation where you're setting up a 75 ton piece of machinery (laughs) hovering over your employers. (laughs) But somehow everybody survived uh, these escapades. Uh, Yeah. It's, clearly things had gotten a little out of control with the dead organization the dead organization was like constantly in danger of spinning out of control but uh this was one of those moments where it reached i would say uh the critical zone <laughs> yeah it, it just seemed <laughs>
3: like it couldn't be sustained yeah it seemed like it was really chaotic and they had like a lot of different uh people in management at this time <laughs> because they were trying to do everything themselves <laughs> with their own record company and and all that stuff right. and um again i think this is in david brown's book there's a great story about jerry garcia running into john denver at the san francisco airport and john denver just had a guitar case and a briefcase and he was doing a tour like where he was playing with like local orchestras in various towns and denver's like yeah i just travel by myself and this is all i travel with and jerry garcia was like really envious of john denver in that moment he's like we have all these people like, why can't we just be like this guy, you know, strip it back. And of course the point of that story is just to say that, you know, again, there was this feeling heading into the end of the year that, you know, things had just gotten way too bloated in the grateful dead camp. And it was going to be time to strip it back. Um, and again, it's interesting because, you know, we alluded to this before that I think when you listen to the shows, from this London run, you can detect the exhaustion that was setting in with the band. And some of that probably has to do with them just have, having traveled to Europe and maybe feeling tired from from traveling. But um, right. on the Dick's Pick series, because Dick put it together so well... I mean, they seem like they're on the top of their game, you know, which may not have been totally representative of like what they actually were. But like by putting all the highlights yeah. together the way he did, I mean, they sound phenomenal on this album. Right.
2: I mean, it's a it's like a it's a charge that is levied against the later periods of the Dead a lot that they could be very inconsistent, but the highs were still really high. And you get like the Save Your Face blog that we've talked about in previous episodes that does this very nice uh, curating job of just pulling out those highs and leaving out the lows and you listen to it and you're like, wow, 1994 was incredible. I had no idea. Um, That's a little bit of what Dick was doing here. Uh, You know, I think the lows of these shows are not, you know, nineties lows, but, and they're very enjoyable to listen to, but um, yeah, it's like uh, definitely an idealized version of of what you were hearing. So the, uh, just to talk briefly about the, this Europe 74 tour, like the Europe 72 tour was really long, right? It was like 30 shows, I want to say, in two months, and they played all around Europe. Uh, this tour was not like that. They were only there for 12 days, less than two weeks, and they only played in, I believe, four different cities. Uh, only seven shows. They lugged the Wall of Sound around Am- with them, as we said. Amsterdam was canceled. Apparently. Oh, that's right. They had another show Amsterdam that was canceled. Was- They worked with some sketchy promoter that didn't do a very good job of, like, getting them paid (laughs) or making shows happen. Uh, So that was also kind of a bummer trip, the entire show uh, or the entire tour. Uh, I think I read somewhere, though, I never figured out whether to confirm this or not, that they were going to try and record like a sequel album, a Europe 74 album. Uh, But somewhere along the way that got scrapped uh it, it's just like it seems like bad vibes all around and when you read sort of the deadheads take on this tour it's not very highly regarded there's really only like two or three shows that people consider to be keepers from this run uh so the you know picking from this run of shows was not necessarily a obvious decision for dick to do and dick's picks
3: well and it was the beginning of the tour and um it seems like when you read accounts from the band that, like, the September 11th show seems to be the gig that people have a positive feeling about. At least I'm basing that on, like, what Ned Legan said. There's a, you know, like, in that, uh, um, in the David Gans book, he talks about how he felt that the night of the 11th, that that was, like, a really good crowd. And uh, it was, like, I think he described it as, like, the ideal Grateful Dead crowd. Um. Although I wonder if he said that because that was the night where him and Phil got to play Sea Stones <laughs> <Maybe, laughs> for a maybe, long time, <laughs> for a very long time, and and it's I think it's like twenty seven minutes, isn't it? It's like really long.
2: And it's like forty uh, minutes, I believe, on that night. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's for pe- for people that don't know probably you know the Deadheads and the Sea Stones. I feel like is almost like a three hundred level Grateful Dead thing. Uh, in part because it was so rarely captured on tape uh, for various reasons uh, but Seastones was uh, so Ned Lakin is this like synthesizer wizard in the days when synthesizers were almost like you know supercomputers <laughs> <laughs> and it was his collaboration with Phil and it was Phil kind of going back to his pre-dead days as an experimental music composer student that used to hang out with like uh you know john cage and steve reich and those dudes uh and it was essentially a showcase for phil and ned to do sort of droney synth experiments for 30 to 40 minutes in the middle of a dead show it seemed to have mostly fallen in sort of the set break between first and second set and it yeah. was almost like they just gave phil like You know we're going to be backstage drinking and relaxing anyway, so if you want to do your weird avant-garde experiment now, uh, you go ahead and do it. Well, you mentioned like how Well,
3: I'll just say like you mentioned like how it wasn't cut on tape very often, and like there's a funny quote from Jerry Moore, who was a famous taper and he ended up being one of the co-founders of of Relics Magazine, and he was at uh, the show in Miami, the six twenty three seventy four show, and he talks about how. You know, Phil and and, and Ned started doing this piece and like he wasn't taping immediately because he didn't realize that it was music. That it was like, (laughs) you know, after about a minute and a half, he's like, his quote is something like, after a minute and a half, I thought, okay, well, I guess it's music. And then he started taping it. But it's like people didn't really know what they were even doing. I mean, like when I listen to it, it kind of reminds me of Space. I mean, that would probably be the most... I mean that—that's kind of what they're doing. It's like even less structured than space, though. I mean, it's—it's right. it's more freeform. Um,
2: well, that's the thing. It's totally in the continuum of Grateful Dead, Gra- the Grateful Dead's avant-garde side, which you have feedback in the early days uh, that was on Volume Four and is on Live Dead. Then you kind of move through Sea Stones, and then you get into yeah, space from the '80s on. It. it it's right in the lineage there so it's not like a total oddball thing except for the fact that you know it has this guy ned who wasn't part of the band ever officially Uh, and for the most part it was just ned and phil though other band members would would sit in occasionally
3: and it seems like too that some audiences really responded negatively to it like there's a story about how Mm -hmm. on this european tour they played it in munich and people were throwing chairs at the audience and uh, this, this uh, Steve Brown, who worked for Grateful Dead Records, he tells a story about how um, he, I think his quote was like he, he thought that Phil and Ned were rebombing Berlin uh, with sea <laughs> with stones. And that, that, you know, the implication being that the people in the audience were having flashbacks to like World War II. You know, from, yeah. from this music being played at them. What's wild though about the Sea Stones that they played on September 11th is that it blends into Eyes of the World, uh, which is an awesome version of Eyes of the World. And and Ned Leggett, he plays on it, and you could hear yeah. it's very prominent electric keyboards. And I think it sounds fabulous. And um, in terms of Dick's Pick 7, like that to me is like the big missing thing from this set because you know, Eyes of the World as I've said is my favorite Grateful Dead song and we've had two Eyes of the Worlds so far both from off-peak years for Eyes of the World like if like 73, 74 is like the golden era of that song that's where you really get the jazzy swinging style that really makes that song blossom and I, I feel like all the best versions of that song are probably from that from those two years yeah. so, so to not get a 74 Eyes of the World when there was a really good one available, it's frustrating. But like, they couldn't really use that without also including sea stones. It would have seemed weird, I think. So that's that's my guess on why it didn't make the cut.
2: Yeah, he would have had to probably fade it in from sea stones, and maybe that was just a bridge too far for Dick, <laughs> as far as uh, editing down a show for mass consumption. Uh, because yeah, that it's, the September 11th show is basically three sets. Uh, and the second set is this very long "Sea Stones," which uh, gradually the rest of the band comes out and plays on Seastones, which is a little unusual. Uh, so Jerry comes out, you can hear pretty early, and then you get some drums, and eventually you get Bob, though I think Keith might not play on it, and there's sort of a weird power dynamic, power struggle going on between Keith and Ned on this tour, where Ned... For a handful of shows, would stick around after Sea Stones and continue playing, and they would have a two-keyboard lineup uh, for a handful of songs. Uh, Though there was one night, a few nights later on in the tour, there's a play-in that Ned plays on after Sea Stones, and I guess Keith just refused to come out and play on it, <laughs> and the rest of the band got really mad at him. But you can kind of see where Keith was coming from, where they had. All of a sudden, this very talented guy, uh, Ned Ligon, uh who also was, you know, adept at using all this new technology that, you know, clearly, at least at this point, Phil was very into. And given the way the dead would progress and their experimentation with MIDI and all these other, you know, sonic technologies over the course of their career, uh, it's the kind of thing that Jerry and Bob were certainly interested in as well. Uh, so I think Keith definitely felt pretty threatened by the fact that this other guy was out there. But anyway, the September 11th show is happier days, and Keith does join for Eyes, so you get two basically electric pianos playing on Eyes of the World, which is really cool in two very different styles because Ned has a very more... fusiony. It feels like yeah. very jazz rock. I, I Absolutely,
3: love that totally worked It works awesome.
2: And Ned even sticks around through War for Rats. So you have this l- almost hour and a half set of music, which is seamless without any stops. And I imagine Dick would have liked it and would have wanted to include all 90 minutes. But for one, it wouldn't fit on a CD. For two, you would have had this 40-minute avant-garde experiment <laughs> taking up you know, half of that runtime. And uh, for three, there was just a lot of other music to uh release from this run and i think he felt like that just would have taken up too much oxygen
3: well we're gonna end up talking about sea stones again because i think it shows up uh it's i think it's like 12 maybe 12 or 13 uh dicks picks yeah it's on one of i forget of them. exactly I... so we'll, we'll we'll get deeper into sea stones i think in that when we talk about that record and we'll talk about ned Lagan because I think we're both legen lovers, man. We're a couple yeah. legen lovers, so we'll, so we'll have a lot to say more to say about that. I think when we yeah. stick when, a pin, when Stones makes the cut, and I think that Sea Stones like a lot shorter too. Or, yeah, or, I think it's
2: only it's a like partial version. version yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I think is, even the band didn't always record the Sea Stones set, so it didn't always make it to the reel to reels in the vaults. So that's another reason why maybe you don't hear Sea Stones as much. But yeah, it's cool. I love what he brought to the dead. And he pushed them in some really interesting directions, and it's kind of too bad that they broke up right after that, because it would have been interesting to hear what he contributed. And he was around in 75 and stuff, too, when they were doing a lot of studio experiments. I think he's at that one um, 75 show where they actually play the entire Blues for Allah, and uh, they, like, I think they had three keyboardists on stage for that that show, so you know he's still going to be around but 74 is definitely the year where he's the most present and active
3: Well, Lagan, we'll see you down the road buddy we'll be talking about you when we get to that dicks picks with the sea stones let's talk about the venue alexandra palace the palace of the people yeah. as they call it yeah uh and this was like an old venue even in 74 it was like 100 years old <laughs>
2: yeah you know we're in we're in europe man the the buildings are old so yeah the alley Pally, as it's known was built in 1873 and like a lot of things in those days burned down immediately (laughs) (laughs) burned down two weeks later and then they had to build it again. So, um, I guess unofficially opened in 1875. Uh, yeah, a lot of history it's, uh, long been used for like BBC radio headquarters. I don't think it is anymore, but it was like the transmitter tower for the BBC. So they had like some news studios and things there it had some pretty famous shows in the 60s it had the 14 hour technicolor dream which is a famous pink floyd show in 1967 that basically had every psychedelic rock band in the uk playing at it uh there was arthur brown there was soft machine the move was there pretty things yoko ono was there and john lennon was in the audience like very much a uh, swing in london uh landmark event uh
3: Definitely a parallel to like whatever the dead was doing in 67 and the Bay exactly. Area, exactly. You know, I mean, that's like what was going on at this place in 67 with the Floyd and everybody, yeah.
2: So, a natural place for the dead to play, I think, even seven years later. Uh, but a lot of bands played there. Zeppelin played there, uh, going into the 80s, like Stone Roses played a famous gig there, I think it was their first London gig. Uh, there's been recent things there, like an All Tomorrow's Parties festival, a Warp tour. I didn't know Warp tour went to Europe, but uh, apparently there was a Warp tour. They probably, you know, set up a half pipe in the middle and uh, had 48 different pop punk <laughs> bands. Did you ever go to Warp tour, Steve? No. Uh, Do you have a Warp tour? Story? I never went
3: to Warp tour. No, no. But you know, I'm sure it would have been majestic to see it. You know, Goldfinger <laughs> and uh, Good Charlotte and. Everybody at the at the palace of the people. Yeah, I saw a, pre, uh, a pre-fame yeah.
2: <laughs> Sugar Ray at the One warp tour I went to. That was the only thing I remember seeing. Oh man, yeah, uh, yeah. Wow. Bjork has played there uh, every year. They host the Masters Snooker tournament there, uh, a classic British sporting event. Uh, but yeah, the Dead were there in 1974, and it seems like so. Like I said, these tapes. Uh, they don't have complete soundboards of all these shows, so every once in a while it flips very jarringly and abruptly to an audience recording. Uh, and this sounds like a big, empty room with terrible acoustics being blasted to smithereens by the wall of sound. <laughs> like, it's always kind of uh, enlightening to hear like a little snippet of what it probably sounded like in the room and it did not sound good so <laughs> this is another sort of distortion you get from a dick's where everything sounds perfectly balanced and mixed on these three discs but uh it was it was probably not a venue that was ideal for loud rock music given that it was built pre-electricity
3: <laughs> yeah and, and just the dead and again like you know the europe 72 tour being such a famous trip for the dead, but, like, it seems like in general, the, you know, the dead are an American phenomenon, you know, like, they belong here, man, not in England, so, you know, I don't know, it just seems like it didn't really work out for them, I mean, did they tour Europe all that much, like, in the 80s or 90s, I feel like...
2: They did, they did a few other tours of Europe, and uh I think they always... Did pretty poorly over there yeah. <laughs> like musically not so much musically but in ticket sales uh i actually got to interview david lemieux uh, a few months back for that ready or not release uh and he was talking about some london shows he got to see i think in the late 80s i forget the exact year sorry dave uh but he talked about how they were playing half full venues and how weird it was to see the dead you know at the peak of touch of gray dead hysteria in the states playing to disinterested and uh fairly empty venues uh, overseas so they yeah they never really clicked over there which you know it's interesting to think about why that is
3: yeah i mean i just think like aesthetically you think of like what was going on in england at this time i guess like in the 74 it would have been pretty proggy at that time because you don't have yeah. punk yet that's a couple years away and like glam rock has fizzled out by now so i mean it's a lot of probably genesis and yes and which the dead you'd see maybe some overlap with that but you know i don't know there's they're so quintessentially american in their approach that i i could see it having trouble translating over there
2: yeah well so there's a, another great dead uh, website out there uh, so many great dead websites out there, but there's one called Grateful Seconds, which collects a lot of primary source material about Grateful Dead tours. Uh, and there's a really good post there about uh, I think it's specifically about the September 11th show, but it's it kind of collects all the press clippings from the UK music press about this Europe 74 trip. So there's a really cool interview with Phil, really deep dive interview with phil that talks a lot about what he was trying to do with the sea stone stuff a really interesting interview with jerry uh and there's an enemy review which just like tears the dead apart <laughs> for these shows uh it was written by charles Shear murray who is a pretty famous british rock critic who i think is still around right doesn't he write for the guardian now yeah
3: um, and, and 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 again this would definitely not be his aesthetic like in his, aesthetic his wheelhouse yeah to write yeah. about the dead I'll, especially like in 74 which I, because again, I, I always think of like the British press being like hyper trendy. And yeah. I just feel like they would have maybe looked at the dead as being passe at this time. Right.
2: Well, I, I, I'm going to read a little excerpt from his review because it is so brutal and so funny to read, given that we are going to gush about this show in a few minutes. <laughs> but his his review concluded. Listening to the Dead these days is like visiting your relatives. It's pleasant and relaxing and really quite enjoyable, but it's also more than a little soporific. They've lost most of their punch and power, and their music now is rich and full, but sluggish and old and fat and slow. This is 1974 Dead he's talking about, not 1994 Dead. They open up their set with Chuck Berry's Around and Around, played about as inappropriately as is possible. It would be foolish to sing while the joint was flowing, flowing round and round, just ebbing and a-flowing, what a laid-back sound. But that's really the way it is. Even when the dead play Barry, it just doesn't rock. So Charles <laughs> Shear Murray is almost an honorary 36 from the vault uh, co-host, <laughs> given that we've said basically the same thing about around and around. Uh, but the rest of it, okay, maybe not so much.
3: Yeah, I'm with him with, you know, around and round, you know, Point taken there, Charles. But like,
1: <laughs>
3: d- d- I just want to go back to his lead, though. Like, does he does he say that visiting your parents is soporific? That's kind of like a weird thing to say about your... It's like, yeah, visiting your parents, is, it's pleasant, but it's also soporific. It's like, you got to bring your parents into it.
2: What, especially what we were talking about in like the, you know, the 79 and 83 shows that the dead were rapidly becoming an oldies act. Right. Maybe in 74, it's a little I mean, things move faster in England. Things are a little trendier, as you say. So I could definitely see the UK saying that. I mean, he's basically saying they're dad rock, right? Right. Exactly. Saying your relatives saying, is uh, dad
3: rock. Yeah, he's saying. Yeah, he's he's saying that they're old. But I just feel like the analogy sort of breaks down there because uh. <laughs> y- y- you're making fun of your own parents. I don't think you'd ever describe your parents as soporifics. Like, soporific is a very rock critic word. I just don't feel like yeah, you would weird. say that. Uh, if, if I can offer some constructive criticism of your writing from uh, 45 years ago, Charles Shearer Murray, I, w- I would say <laughs> that maybe not use that word. It seems kind of awkward to me. Um Let's let us let, set up the scene here uh, for uh, early September 1974. The number, and we're going to be going with American statistics, even though the dead were in England. We, I looked
2: up the UK stuff, so we could talk about oh, did that you? too. All I right. did.
3: Well, look, I'm, America, love it or leave it is the way I am. You know, America first. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I went with the American background. But the number one song in America uh, this week was You're Having My Baby. By Paul Anka and Odia <laughs> Coates. Which uh, do you know that song? That's like a that's like like an AM pop, like standard, like just soft rock elevator standard. music.
2: Yeah, it is. Uh, wow, I you know I I thought that the charts in the early '70s would just be like consistently great, where we'd be like, wow, I can't believe all this music came out at this same time. But uh, this not this doesn't really so much apply here.
3: <laughs> this is kind of a rough. A rough patch of the 70s. Yeah, you got like Paper Laces, The Night Chicago Died. You have (laughs) Andy Kim's Rock Me Gently. You have the (laughs) aforementioned John Denver, Annie song. Uh, Barry White, Can't Get Enough of Your Love, Babe. It's it's a good song. Um, The song that took over the number one slot the following week was I Shot the Sheriff, the Eric Clapton version, Um, was the number one song. Uh so yeah a lot of AM gold basically at this yeah. time like um uh, very inoffensive music. Um I feel like I've I feel like I was introduced to a lot of these songs because like Ktel would do like compilations that they'd have commercials <laughs> yeah. for like late at night oh, yeah. like in the 90s. So like that's how I know like The Night Chicago Died and Rock Me right. Gently like from those types what a... of compilations.
2: <laughs> the Night Chicago Died like as a Chicagoan. It's just like nails on a chalkboard to me. <laughs> it's so like hilariously incorrect. And they were a British band. I don't know what they were thinking. But trying to like retell the story of the Valentine's Day Massacre, but it was like it's, talking about Al Capone killing hundreds of Chicago cops, which is not what the Valentine's Day Massacre was. They refer to the east side of Chicago, which there is no east side of Chicago uh i saw i found a quote today of them sending it to mayor the older mayor daly's office and some staff member telling them they should basically go drown themselves it was so bad (laughs) so yeah a weird time for music right
3: (laughs) oh man and well see i thought it was about the band chicago so i thought it was like you know foreshadowing (laughs) Terry katz accidental (laughs) shooting himself uh, three years after this um
1: and, and, yeah, and, and, so, and things you,
2: were not better in uh england by the way so just to add the a quick note on the uk charts they had two songs by the osmonds in the top three at this point so charles sheer murray be damned uh england was not cooler than the united states at this point they had two osmond songs and in between those two was kung fu fighting <laughs> which oh man is essentially you know Probably one of the most racist uh, hit songs of all time. <laughs> I was trying to decide whether kung fu fighting is more offensive than uh, turning Japanese. And I think maybe turning Japanese is just because it's like
3: well, was it turning Japanese like, a though? metaphor for masturbation. Yeah, right.
2: Uh, so it's like not. Uh, I mean, kung this fu is... fighting is just literally about kung fu movies, but has yeah, and it ha- and it has
3: like of... the you know which is <laughs> right, like I'm yeah, sorry for doing that. That seems yeah. pretty pretty racisty. Um, so the number 1 album in America this week was 461 Ocean Boulevard by Eric Clapton. This was his big comeback record after he was um basically like in the throes of heroin addiction for a couple years after the Derek and the Dominos record and it went into he went into a dark period and then he came out and he made 461 Ocean Boulevard and that was like his pop uh comeback and the aforementioned I Shot the Sheriff was one of the big singles off of that record. Um, And uh, uh, let it grow was on that record too, which is like, I mean, I think that's like one of the better solo, solo Clapton songs. Let it grow.
2: Do you you like that song? uh, No. (laughs) So
3: Eric Clapton's probably
2: up there with Rod Stewart on my like blacklist of classic rock people. I would like to hear your defense of uh, this era of Eric Clapton. If you have one.
3: Well, I, I'm i not going to defend, like, solo Eric Clapton. I think uh, as a solo artist, his crucial flaw is that he has no ambition whatsoever. <laughs> like, he makes the least uh, offensive music. It, it, basically, it's like he heard J.J. J. Kale at some point and just took the most boring aspects of J.J. J. Kale's music and just did that over and over again in his solo career. I do like Clapton in the 60s. Um, I like him in Cream, I like him in Blind Faith, and I like Derek and the Dominoes a lot. I think that he's a great sideman. Right. And I think in a way he would have maybe preferred to just be a guitar player in someone else's band because there's something about him, he just doesn't really assert himself artistically. So I think you know, when we think of like the great rock stars, he has by far the weakest catalog. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you've actually gone and listened to any of those Rod Stewart records or listened to the Faces. I think Rod Stewart actually has a great catalog uh, up to a certain point in his career. Like, there are several, I think, classic records that he's put out. Clapton, as a solo artist, he has so many just boring records. Right. And not only only are they, like, it's one thing to have, like, bad records that are interesting, you know, because I am someone who will bend over backward to – get into like a, a, a an interesting failure yeah you know like it's like well, at least they tried something but he's never really trying anything interesting on his on his records ever and I, I mean 461 ocean Boulevard is fine and and he has record slowhand that came out a couple years after that which is like probably his other most famous uh, solo record at least of this era before he gets into like the 90s unplugged stuff yeah unplugged era with, with his, he has the Jason Priestley haircut and, and all that <laughs> um it's just awful um but anyway that's enough about Eric Clapton <laughs> we should say that the following week Stevie Wonder took over the number one slot slot with the fulfilling this first finale which is like probably like the least. Known record of his like run from seventy two to seventy six, which is like one of the greatest runs by for any artist. You have talking book Intervisions, you have fulfilling his first finale, and then you have uh, songs in the key of life. Like those four albums all came out, which every single person loves those records. Those are just brilliant records, right? I mean, you're not gonna like shit on Stevie Wonder right now. No, are you? yeah,
2: but I mean, this is the one that I only know because it has boogie on reggae woman on it, which is. Part of my 1% allotment of uh, fish references for this episode. Uh, Yeah, but I mean, it's it's good. It's, you know, very... It's of a piece with all those other records. It just doesn't have any of the, like, hit singles. You haven't done nothings on that record,
3: which is really great. I mean, it's a great record. It's just, you know, next to those other three, which are, you know, three extremely famous and beloved masterpieces, that is merely a great record. It's not necessarily like a all-time masterpiece like those other three um mm-hmm. the number one album i'm sorry the number one film uh is chinatown roman polanski right one of the all-time classic movies of 70s cinema and really cinema of all time i love that movie
2: yeah yeah it's a shame we like it's, it feels gross to talk about Roman Polanski, of course, but yeah, yeah it's 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 amazing. But
3: you know, give credit to Robert Town then for writing the screenplay. It's like one of the most famous yeah, yeah. screenplays ever. So if you don't want to give props to Polanski, give it to Robert Town. Um, also, got a shout out. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia, which came around around this time. Sam Peckinpah. I have a Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia poster in my office. Um, wow. I'm a big Sam Peckinpah fan. That's a great movie starring the great Warren Oates. I got to see
2: some Peckinpah. That's a blind spot for Ooh, me. Ooh,
3: Great stuff. Love Peckinpah.
2: want to see some violent westerns. Yeah.
3: Violent westerns. Bring me the head. It's like a modern western where he's in, it's set in modern day and he has to go into Mexico to uh, to get someone's head. But it ends up being oh, okay. a different kind of movie from there. Chris Christopherson's also in that playing a very scary oh. biker uh oh, yeah he's good i that. like it um number one show all in the family of course because we're in the 70s
2: yep again <laughs> and Then you have sanford
3: and son chico and the man and the jeffersons um which i've se- i feel like i used to watch all those shows on wgn when i was a kid
2: yeah yeah when you said that in our notes i was i was Im- immediately snapped back to <laughs> sitting in front of the TV as a child watching WGN cuz you're right it was like those shows uh Cubs games yep the blues brothers i think they showed the blues brothers every day on WGN <laughs>
3: and uh and bozo the clown Bo- bozo
2: the clown that was about it yeah, yeah bozo
3: in the morning that was that's good stuff man all right this is midwest culture yeah. right there <laughs> all right let's get into the actual show here so we're on disc, we're on disc 1 and we start with Scarlet Begonias from yeah, the September 9th show. A,
2: a, a quick preface is that like this I actually had to like color code all the tracks <laughs> for this because Dick is really uh mixing and matching between shows here. Like he there's there's a little bit of every show on every disc except for the third disc which is all from the September 10th show. Uh so yeah, it, it gets a little confusing in terms of the actual chronological way these songs were laid out, so I think we'll just uh, we'll stick with the 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 you know the track list as a a uniform entity
3: from here on out, right, Steve? Yeah, because it, it you know because it, it, unlike four, I feel like four was easier to delineate, like what came from where, and to talk about it. We could do that in here, but it'd be extremely confusing, and we'd have to like you know email you all a chart so you could follow at home (laughs) while listening. And it would do a flow chart. Yeah. So so Scarlet, I mean, this was, you know, really early on in Scarlet's trajectory. I mean, the first Scarlet was played in March. um, And that Scarlet was collected on Dick's Picks 24, which you're going to be hearing a long time from now. But that was also the debut of The Wall of Sound, that show. Right. The first time they played Scarlet. Of course that re- that song was on on the Mars Hotel uh, record, and it, you know it, it's still weird to me to not hear Fire on the Mountain after this. You know, I yeah. I know that like it's you know that song didn't the, those songs weren't married for a couple years after they started playing Scarlet, but they're so wedded together in my mind. It, it, it's a little weird, but this is a really cool version, and you know we were talking earlier about the strangeness of going from the '80s back to 74 and you really hear it right away in the song and it it seems like the big thing is it, it sounds like there's no instruments on here you know it seems very spare it sounds <laughs> you hear you hear the drums you hear the vocal um you hear some guitar but like just that wall of of sound from the 80s with you know, all the brent keyboards and, uh, and all the busyness that was going on then i mean this sounds super spare
2: yeah i mean the it this almost seems like a message from Dick in a way to put this particular version of Scarlet, you know, first on Dick's pick seven, almost like, I mean, so we, we, we talked about how he picked that particular 83 show for Dick's pick six because there hadn't been a Scarlet fire on a Dick's picks yet. And he wanted to include a Scarlet fire, but this almost feels like he's picking out like, this is the way Scarlet, like should sound <laughs> or how he how he prefers it would sound which uh you know a no crazy synthesizer marimba <laughs> barging in on the first few notes uh, it also love has the donna marimba it, which I, I still love to my marimba. ears uh you can't do a scarlet begonias without donna even though she's she's not at her sharpest in this version and she's kind of doing this like moaning thing she would do a lot over the first part of the jam uh, which I don't know, this version, you know, we I I will restate that this is a firmly pro Donna podcast, but I feel by sticking that ground, uh, we can also criticize Donna when she doesn't sound at her best. And as we've said before, Donna and the Walla Sound didn't really mix well because as we had talked about earlier, The wall of sound was meant to act as a monitor, which maybe worked for a big loud bass guitar, but for poor Donna trying to hear herself over everybody else, it sounds like it didn't really work so well. And she's talked about this in interviews before, so she's not really hitting the spot here, but the the rest of it sounds great.
3: There's a great line uh, in in David Brown's book where he says that only in the bizarre world of the Grateful Dead would Donna, who was the only trained singer in the band, have problems with pitch, you know, with the wall of sound. Because, like, somehow the other guys could sing on pitch, um, and she couldn't, and it was always an issue for her with the wall of sound because it was so loud for her and she was just right. you know she was like a studio singer i mean she was used to i mean she was in the studio with elvis presley you know
2: yeah she sings on suspicious minds like yeah <laughs> elvis doesn't pick people that can't sing in tune like she uh she had the chops it was just she was put in a a bad situation i think
3: Mexicali Blues, Bob Weir song and Bobby. you know, we're getting the cowboy song right away, but you know, we're not hitting the conventional cowboy songs yet. We're going to get those, I guess, later on in this set. But <laughs> I I've always been a fan of Mexicali Blues. I like the song a lot. I like this version of it, and it's really fast and it is actually making me think of the Meat Puppets. When I was listening to it. I like that. Because the the Meat Puppets have that same, and the Meat Puppets, of course, great indie rock band that started in the 80s. And they were uh, one of the great bands that combined punk music with country music. They were also deadheads. So, uh, you know, they were were influenced by the dead. But this just has that cow punk pace to it. uh, And uh, it really serves the song well. I like it a lot.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's nice to have a little variety in the Bobby Cowboy songs uh, <laughs> in Mexicali. I think it's a pretty fun song. Uh, it's a, a morally questionable song, <laughs> given that it's talking about, uh, I don't know, taking home a 14-year-old girl. Uh, the It's funny, so we just did, it's been a while at this point, but we did a watch party of uh, Halloween nineteen eighty the Radio City Music Hall show with a bunch of fans. And thanks to those of you who who joined us to watch that. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and somebody brought up in the chat when they played Mexicali in that show that Dead & Company have updated it, and now they sing uh, a girl of just 18 instead of 14, <laughs> uh, and, which I thought was pretty funny. And so I went and I investigated, and I listened to a 2018 Dead & Company version, and they do not update it, <laughs> which I don't know which is worse because... Uh, who so yeah. bob still sings it bob still sings uh girl of just 14 uh in the year of our lord 2018 at least oh, so man. maybe he's updated it since uh you know it's uh, probably not so i it, it's funny to think that this was ever politically correct <laughs> to well i mean uh, but especially you...
3: now not so good yeah But can you like can you make the argument that like it's the character in the song that's that is compromised and that there's a certain authenticity to it because this is maybe an unsavory character and and they would be into that kind of thing it's not an endorsement of it it's like hey we're just reporting we're reporting (laughs) about a least not endorsement (laughs) yes we're not we're not we're not you know because like the Rolling Stones had that same thing in that song Stray Cat Blues you know where it's like there's that whole thing. I don't, It was weird. Like, the 70s were weird with that kind of stuff. I know. It's really seemed, weird. It, it's really creepy. It seemed like it was more out in the open. Like, rock stars yeah. being with, like, young teenage girls. And I don't know if it was just, like, if, if it was, like, a weird byproduct of the sexual re- revolution where, you know, you didn't want to judge anybody for their behavior. But even when it was, like, illegal or very <laughs> gross, I don't know. But... Yeah.
2: Uh, maybe, maybe best to move on, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll let that uh, one lie. Yeah. an unfortunate, uh, by, yeah, sort of sub, sub topic to Mexicali blues, but otherwise a good version and, uh, you know, kind of a fun song to hear and a nice change of pace.
3: Uh, so we get into road Jimmy on our next track and it, it, this is all from the S- September 9th show, this run of songs, the first three songs. And, uh. This was on Wake of the Flood this song and it, they started playing it in 73 and it's our first appearance on a Dix Picks. Yeah, it's a Dix
2: Picks debut. We're going to start running out of those soon, but for now Dix we Pix can Pix uh, still cling to these 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 new songs popping up. Yeah, Road Jimmy, it's like it's a nice song. I think it like always runs the risk of being a little too sleepy. Uh, the version there were two versions from this run of shows and i think dick picked the right one because the september 11th one is like kind of lurches a little bit uh but yeah it's nice and it's another nice sort of robert hunter story song about a couple uh when you know when, when jerry uh, plays it uh with some energy I, I i enjoy it but it can be a bit of a snooze at other times
3: you know I've always liked this song a little bit more when I hear the older Dead play it. And maybe... I don't know. like Maybe they're really walking a tightrope with that kind of thing. Because obviously with the older Dead, it gets even slower, and it, it runs the risk of even turning sleepier. But I also feel like it has a certain vulnerability to it where it needs to be a little rickety, maybe, for it to totally work for me. I mean, I really like this version, and I generally like this song a lot. Um, But I just remember like the first versions I heard of this were like late eighties, early nineties versions. And that's always been a road Jimmy sweet spot for me. Um, And I'm going to go back to my, my, uh, my blessed er uh, spring of 91 era, which was a big era for me when I first started listening to the dead. And there's some road Jimmys from that time that I, that I like a lot. So I like, I like it when that song's a little beat up and Jerry's voice sounds a little more ragged when he sings it. I think it actually suits the song well. Um, even though when the older dead plays it, they're even more susceptible to the weaknesses that you were talking about. So right, they, that version of that can really pull off the song, but they can also crash it into the side of the mountain. Or I guess that's too dramatic for the song. They can like fall asleep on the side of the mountain and, and take a nice 10 minute long nap. Uh, with this song. But <laughs> I like this version a lot. Works for me. Um, we go into Black Throated Wind. After this. And it's right. the second song from Ace. Already in this set. The uh, The first Bob Weir solo record. Which came out during a time where the dead. Were not putting out studio records. I mean there was that three year gap. From American Beauty to Wake of the Flood. Um, and I've heard Ace described. As a stealth Grateful Dead record. Because the whole band plays on it um, right. and it is one of my favorite studio records to come out of the dead camp um, of that time I, I mean all the songs on there for the most part I think there's maybe one song or two that didn't become live staples but for the most part like that record went right into the dead sets at this time uh, and it just shows I mean there's these two songs showing up pretty early on in this Dick's seri- Big uh, record
2: right and "Black Throat of Wind," I think, is it's probably one of my favorite Bob songs. It's oh, it's yeah. not one that Absolutely. I think instantly comes to people's mind very often, but it's it's just got a nice it's got that like nice sort of languid mood that I feel like Bob goes for a lot in his songs, and maybe just because this is one of the earlier versions of that approach, it works a lot better for me. It's got it's got nice.
4: To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. That's mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: What is a city without its music?
4: The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible.
2: Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories.
4: I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking... I can't quite believe this is happening.
2: Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Visual lyrics to it. Uh, it's just like a cool, like, laid-back California folk rock song, which is you know, really the strengths that Bob could bring to the band at this point before he became showman Bob uh, later on in their run. Uh, It's another song that could get a little hammy with Bob later on. I don't think there is a Bob song that doesn't get a little hammy later on. Uh, But this one, I think, reaches like a nice peak of emotion uh, without going over the line to, you know, yeah, just really... Going over the top.
3: Yeah, I think with Bob, his formula a lot of times was to start out mellow and then just be, like, angrily scatting at the end of the song. You know, like, just, like, shouting, you know, and shouting the same (laughs) words and, like, elongating them. Right. And... Hating rain,
2: hating wind, <laughs> right, uh,
3: and uh, all,
2: all all sorts of weather patterns, uh, right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> just, just, just Bob bellowing at the sky at the end of the song, and <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's the dramatic arc of the song because musically there's not necessarily like a musical peak, but like Bob is given the oomph in uh, his vocal. Also, I feel like we got to shout out uh, John Barlow who co-wrote this song and also co-wrote Mexicali Blues" in that would be a very fruitful uh, partnership. You know, not as uh, famous, of course, as Garcia-Hunter, but, you know, they wrote a lot of good songs. And and and, I, and it's interesting because I feel like the lyrics that Barlow was writing, especially for, like, Mexicali Blues, they kind of remind me of, like, Robert Hunter-type narratives, you know. Uh, but, but yeah. like, Hunter didn't want to write with, with Bob uh, because of his issues right. with how Weir would use his lyrics. But... um definitely found a very good taking liberties taking liberties
2: with his words Uh, yeah
3: um okay so we're going to the next song here and i feel like um you know brian our (laughs) producer he may want to play some tinkly piano music over what i'm about to say here because we're right it's a
2: it's 36 from the vault apology
1: corner
3: Yeah, it's the apology corner. We're talking about Mississippi Half Step, Uptown Tudaloo, and you know, longtime listeners of this podcast will remember that the last time this song came up uh, on a Dick's Picks record was uh, it was Volume One, I think. And I I think I can't remember what I said exactly about Mississippi Half Step, <laughs> but I, I'm pretty sure I called it a hate crime. I think I called it the worst song of all time. Uh, well, there was your uh, bathroom break. Was it my bathroom break that, that set people off? It was. Oh like, man. Yeah. Okay, that is that is going a little too far. I gotta say, I'm gonna I'm gonna chastise myself <laughs> for that. Um, but you know, I just want to apologize for disrespecting this song. I think what I meant to say is that's it's not my favorite Grateful Dead song. I would classify. Well, you know what? I'm not gonna even go down that road. I was about to say something (laughs) that would have undermined my apology. I just want to say, you know, I apologize for any disrespect that I might have shown Mississippi half step. And I just want, and I'm saying that in the context of actually really enjoying this version that is on Dick's Pick Mm Seven. I thought it was really good. Um, and, uh, And you enjoyed it as well.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I said this back then, but Half Step is a song that sounds weird to me when there's no Donna. I think she actually does bring a lot to Half Step, and absolutely. So this version feels way more like in the like what I imagine Half Step to be. I, I still don't think Half Step is quite fully matured, and I'm excited for you to hear like the English Town version and some of the late '70s versions. The, Engl- the, the English
3: Town version, that, which is. Um is that, f- which, I'm trying to remember what Dick's Picks that is. I can't, is that like 15? Uh, I can't remember, but that's the one that people talk about. The English Town, right? You know, from, right. from New Jersey, 77. Uh, but It
2: had like this sort of brief jump from, uh, you know, right now it's like one of the, the better sort of first set warm-up songs, I think. And it is a, v- a very good example of the Grateful Dead jugle. Uh, sound, uh, but it uh, it has a sort of brief crossover to being like an actual jam showcase that you know is part of why I think people bristled so much at you <laughs> slamming it back on uh, episode one uh, because it did have a, a a heyday that people really appreciate back in '74. It it I think it's just it's it's really solid and a a welcome song to hear early in the show. Uh, but not exceptional yeah. Yeah,
3: it was good. It was, it was very pleasant to hear on the first disc. I forgot that I said it was a bathroom break song. It does seem over the line. So, <laughs> right. Like I said, I don't remember what I say in these episodes at all. You know, I, I, play, I play the gig, <laughs> and then I unplug the guitar, and I just move on, man. Yeah,
2: I just, it's for other people to listen to the
3: exactly, tapes and man. the show, right? It's, yeah, exactly. Um, next song, we're going into Beat It Down the Line, or Beat It On Down the Line. And it's interesting to me, uh, this song, primarily just because this is one of the only remnants of, like, the old dead. And uh, Mm -hmm. old dead meaning, like, 60s dead. And and really, I mean, this was a song that goes back, really, to, like, the beginning of The Grateful Dead. Like, it was a song that they played when they were a jug band. You know, like, it predates the dead proper. They, of course, recorded it for their first record. And it's a song that has... Stuck with them throughout their entire history. I mean, they they played it. I think they there was only they, they played it every year except '76 and '95.
2: Um, yeah, that's crazy. So it just I didn't realize that it just stayed
3: in their sets. But like, if you look at the rest of the sets, uh, you know, from this run and, and really from this era, I mean, they had really made the transition out of their '60s repertoire for the most part. I mean, you right. you still had Dark Star, but Dark Star was becoming less of an of an occurrence. And they had really turned it over, the, you know, their sets over to like the songs that they had written in the early 70s.
2: It's very like Europe 72 and subsequent albums, right? Yeah. I mean, there's not even a lot of Working Man's Dead American Beauty stuff in this set, at least what made the Dix picks. Uh, yeah, and there's, you know, the other than the Sea Stones eyes war set the only other thing i could really spot in these three shows that i wish they would have included was that there's a pretty good china rider oh yeah which had some pretty severe tape issues uh on the version i heard i believe it's on the 10th they played a cool china rider with a mind love body jam in the middle which they did a lot in this era so that's not that notable but i still love it every time i hear it and china rider is another sort of late 60s Yeah, you know a song that conjures up the late 60s dead in the same way that beat it on down the line does uh but yeah not included in uh dick's picks from this particular show so you're right this is really like uh one of the the rare occurrences of early primal dead uh in this set
3: and it's a good showcase for bob And and it's another song that i
2: think that yeah bob and donna singing together i think always sounds really good uh they have a nice. It's not quite harmonies. I think harmonies is maybe too kind a word, but they do a good like dual lead on this song. And yeah, Donna, she's good. She's good on this set. She has her moments. There's a play and scream coming up that is uh, less than ideal as well. But uh, you know, it's good to hear her back on these songs. It's where she
3: should be. Yeah, you know, this is, and yeah, I mentioned this earlier, but like listening to this album, it I was just constantly reminded of. How we're listening to these albums in order and how that's affecting how we hear it because i mean i love hearing donna too and i love donna anyway but there's definitely elements of this album that i feel like i enjoyed more because we're coming off of five and six you know what i mean like if i had just heard this isolated i i wonder and i've heard this album before obviously but um i just feel like the context in which we're hearing it is really influencing how we hear about it because there's so many just sonic hallmarks of 74 um that i could hear with fresh ears because we just came out of the 80s it's also
2: yeah it's also interesting to hear it after dicks picks one which is that weird show that didn't have donna right because she was about to about to give birth so it's a lot of the same material uh as this show but A lot of the parts that they had written or carved out for Donna are now, you know, back in Donna's hands instead of sort of strangely absent (laughs) as they are on that uh, December 73 show.
3: So the next song, it's another controversial 36 from the vault track, (laughs) which is Tennessee Jed. You and I have taken some shots at Tennessee Jed. Um, We should get we got to get Amar on the phone at some point. To talk about Tennessee Jet. I know because he's he, he's the member of the of the thirty six from the Vault family. That's a, that's the TJ Defender. I actually had someone come after me on Twitter for my Tennessee Jet opinions. <laughs> Someone's dropping curse words at me. He actually dropped an F bomb at me because he's very angry. Yeah, uh, and I'm, like, I'm sorry. I I don't hate this song. I think it's fine. I'm just not a huge fan of the song. I thought this version was fine. Um. But to me, Tennessee Jed, like I'm never blown away by this song. I, I I wasn't bored listening to this version. I thought it was fine, but like it, it was just fine to me.
2: Yeah, I mean I, that's all I got too. <laughs> <laughs> it was like I wasn't turning it off. I did, didn't use my bathroom break here. It was just uh, yeah, that's another Tennessee Jed. And I wish I could hear it with the ears that people who really appreciate Tennessee Jed hear it with, because I want to know what is different about, you know, unique versions of Tennessee Jed. But, I don't know, like, people say that Jerry has a really interesting and playful solo on it, which I can kind of hear. And there's, like, a tension with whether he's actually going to land it with the rest of the band instead of just kind of a classic Grateful Dead train wreck <laughs> at the end of the jam. Uh, and uh, for, to my ears, he does land it here. So, hey, cheers to that. But, yeah, what what else can you say about old Jed?
3: Yeah. And I'm not gonna say anything else because I feel like I got out of that without saying anything too offensive about Tennessee Jed. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna quit while I'm ahead on that song. Let's go into playing in the band, and this is an epic yeah. version of this, and it, it had shades. Of, what, what was that? Was that uh, when was the last time this occurred? Was that the two, Dick's Picks two, where it had like the long plan? So I in... Again-
2: that was a uh, Dick's one as well it was one so okay. also in this same era yeah uh and i sort of went on the record with being sort of bored with that one or at least like perplexed like i wasn't really feeling it in the uh sort of gut sense it just seemed like kind of brainy and free and not really moved didn't really move me but this is one that i like a lot and i think it's A lot darker than that version and it has a lot more momentum behind it and this is also where it really jumps out that keith is playing a ton of electric piano like this is the most electric piano i've ever heard keith play loved it uh in a dead set and what that really brings out you already brought this up but the it sounds like they were listening to a lot of electric miles davis band and he was just churning out what like two or three albums a year right <laughs> of jazz fusion at this point this is kind of like at the tail end of that period for miles but you can see how the dead would be listening to a lot of that like bitches brew in a silent way and so forth miles uh, lineups and saying, "Hey, we can we can do something like this," and Keith busting out the electric piano and playing some like Chick Corea lines all over this plan is it's very appealing to me. Yeah, and kept my interest a lot more than the '73 version we heard yeah. uh, several volumes ago.
3: Yeah, I agree with that 100. percent I love the electric piano. This comes from this version of plan comes from the the September 11th show that we were talking about earlier, and I feel like. Yeah, Some of the energy that I love from The Eyes of the World is also in this uh, version of playing in the band. And I guess it's because of the electric piano. It has that same kind of jazz fusion feel that you get from uh, the Legan set uh, in in the September 11th mm-hmm. show. Uh, and I really love that. And you know, it was just making me think about how they were really pushing playing out in 74 I, uh, did you ever listen to the entire uh, 46 minute version that's collected on that uh, Believe It If You Need It Pacific Northwest compilation that came out? I, I think that was I last did, year I did once uh, yeah. That's kind of an endurance once, test, just... that's like a little too yeah. much uh, But I, That's a little
2: too much playing for my taste. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I'm
3: glad it exists and I look forward to revisiting that sometime and hopefully being blown away by it but i mean to me like, that's more fun in theory than it is to like listen to like that's like a little bit too long this version um i think is around 24 minutes or sh- or so so it's about half yeah. as long and i i don't feel <laughs> and i never feel bored by it i i thought uh, I, yeah. I was riveted the entire time
2: Same here. And then this is also where I want to bring up how amazing Phil is on this entire set. Oh, yeah. Like, I think he is absolutely the MVP of this volume. And it made me think, like, is 73 and 74 considered such a great era of the dead because Phil was basically at his peak powers at this time? Like, th- This is an era where I really feel like he was, like, like Jerry is always number one. But this is where Phil is one a like he is playing just as much of a lead role as Jerry in some jams, and depending on how a tape or a, you know a, a live release like this one is mixed, he's just as loud as Jerry and just as present and you know in the foreground of these improvisations as Jerry, uh, and I I love it. I mean, I think there's people that maybe Phil. Is not their favorite part of the dead that might be turned off by this era, but I think this is really sort of the secret ingredient as to why I'm drawn to this particular era of the dead.
3: Yeah, I love Phil in 74. I mean, I would say Phil and Keith. I mean, I think this was like peak Keith. And I don't yeah, I don't think he was as good when they came back from the hiatus, and then he starts, you know, going into a decline, you know, that last several years in the back half of the 70s but yeah I mean Keith and Phil both sound like fantastic uh on this track yeah. and you know Phil again he was doing a lot of acid at this time so he was still waving the acid flag and the dead and and maybe that was rubbing off on his playing at this time cuz it seemed like it seemed like Jerry and and some of the other guys were more into the white powder and he was more I think he you know, was
2: the most into uh wall of sound too and sort of the opportunities of that opened up sonically for the band this this thing i mentioned about how each string of his bass had its own separate speaker cabinet (laughs) 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 is like such a geeky thing and the fact that he had set that up and was using all that technology and also using some weird effects and technology when he was playing with ned uh, for the sea stone sets uh, Phil just seemed to really be riding high at this point. He even looks cool at this point. I mean it might be the only year that Phil actually looked cool.
0: <laughs> well, like did he have
3: Cuz you know like in the Grateful Dead movie he has that like incredible bass strap that's like huge. It's like a yeah. huge. Uh, yeah. Did he have that I wonder if he had that like throughout 74 or if that was just like a special thing? He must thing. have. Right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I He's got like We got to get it. He's a, got
2: a nice beard going. He's right. uh Right. Yeah, he needed not, a beard. He's not He's not quite into like mom jeans and beer belly and tucked in <laughs> shirts and all that and big giant prescription glasses and yeah it's like uh, this is this is peak Phil uh, and I you know to for different reasons I feel like he didn't really come back from the hiatus as strong uh, and I really missed him a lot in those those '80s shows I think we talked a lot about how Brents took over uh, some real estate in the Grateful Dead sound and sort of push some other people to periphery. And I think Bob and Phil are the two that really maybe suffered in that equation because, uh, you know, Bob also struck me in this set. It was like a revelation hearing Bob at full on like rhythm guitar, you know, counterpoint again, after he was Doing maybe some simpler things in the 80s. And Phil had some big moments in the 80s, but he certainly wasn't as busy and active and full of ideas as he was, uh, as he is on this show and this
3: set. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's good for us to say nice things about Phil. We've we've made some jokes at Phil's expense. So we got to, you know, we got to give him some props, you know, because he deserves it. So there you go, Phil. We love you. disc two now and we're gonna start with another controversial 36 from the vault track <laughs> we're hitting a lot of the old you know hit, it's hitting some of the ones that we've taken some shots at before but um although this, this is more you than me because I, I i like weather report sweet and
2: i re- yeah i guess we cue i know up the apology music again yeah do we need some <laughs> apology music
3: for rob Because, I mean, you like this version. Because was Weather Report sweet? Was that also in in 1? Uh, yeah. This Last... is like we're
2: fully cycling back to
3: all the Dixbox 1 we uh, came, we material intakes. We came out guns blazing in our we first did. episode, man. Well, I like this version a lot. And I feel like, um, you know, I think this song sometimes the knock against it is that it can drag a bit and lose its way. Mm-hmm. And I I didn't really get that from this. I mean, especially in the back half, I thought the Let It Grow section, again, you kind of get that jazz fusion feel as they get into the jammy part of it, and I really like that. I really like that that feel for the dead. And the beginning part, I know that you've talked about the intro feeling a little sleepy to you, but I I thought it was beautiful on this version.
2: Yeah, I think it gets... So I, I always like the Let It Grow part of Weather Report Suite, and it is, opens up into some really big jams starting around now, and this one is tremendous. Uh, but yeah, I didn't feel like the path of getting to Let It Grow was quite as tedious this time, and it's probably, this is going to sink my apology, but part of why way I don't like the Dix Pix 1 version is that I think Jerry's playing Slide on it, and kind of don't like jerry garcia playing slide guitar which is a weird thing because i like him playing pedal steel a lot which is you know very similar to slide in its tone but i kind of think his slide guitar on the dix picks one version is is pretty awful not bob awful but it's it's not (laughs) great uh and it's a lot better on this version so that's my like pseudo apology is uh going even harsher on the Dix Pigs 1 version I listened to both back to back today because I was like why do I like this version so much more and that's what really leapt out to me and also the fact that they're just playing a little faster and again you've got some really great electric piano from Keith uh, throughout both the composed part and the jam and that fusion feel and yeah the song it, it sounds like they've been playing it for a year longer than last we heard it and it sounds a lot better and it also sounds like they're maybe ready to let the prelude and part one go and just keep the let it grow part around, which is what they did, I think, pretty much for the rest of their time. Uh, so, yeah, uh, a, a weak apology. Your apology was a lot better. Mine's more of like a I'm sorry if anyone was offended, uh,
3: but I was right.
1: Yeah, I <laughs> apology. Mean, I just want to say, I mean,
3: you, you can't see us, but like my chin was quivering during my apology. I, I was struggling to contain my emotions. <laughs> because it was it was yeah. such a it was like a weight on my shoulders and i i was glad to be able to let that out going back to the jerry slide thing doesn't jerry play slide on road jimmy sometimes like during the guitar solo i feel like that might be like a slide part like yeah i, I don't think he does it on this uh version uh but i feel like in like late 70s sometimes guitar solos on road jimmy he would do slides and that always sounded pretty cool.
2: It actually kind of makes me like respect the people that are really good at playing slide guitar, because if it's something that, at least in my opinion, a genius like Jerry Garcia couldn't really master, then it must actually be a pretty like unique skill for somebody to pull off (laughs) but yeah yeah, i think the dead in general uh slide guitar is their kryptonite whether you're talking about jerry or bob (laughs) uh and they probably should have left that to their buddy uh buddies the almonds but you know that's just one man's opinion sorry
3: folks but bob bob just gets so excited about his slides you know and it and then he has hot sound checks where he does the slide, and it's just it's like, oh, I can't wait to get out there. And Sounds like a hula play my nightmare. slide, yeah. <laughs> okay, so th- from there we go. This is kind of a weird placement for this song. Yeah, it's Stella Blue in the second slot on disc two, and uh, this was from the September tenth show, and it was in the first set of September tenth. Yeah, it was in the actual show too. Yeah, it's very odd. For Stella Blue because for me I always think of Stella Blue as being like the dramatic high point of the second set you know coming out of the jam yeah. you know the drum space and then you play a gorgeous Stella Blue with like a killer uh Jerry guitar Jerry Garcia guitar solo and I just feel like in this slot it actually takes a lot of the drama out of the song and it makes it seem like I don't want to say boring because like I love Stella Blue so much, but like it 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 does uh, make it less compelling. Yeah. In this slot, well, it it actually
2: I was surprised too because I thought it was pretty rare for it to show up in the first set, but it early on it was very often a first set song. Uh, but I agree. I think like it's a song that benefits from the band being really tired because it sort of has that <laughs> right. sort of world weary point of view written into the song so if the band has been playing for three hours at this point and the crowd is coming down from whatever they took for the show that it, it really strikes a chord with everybody involved uh so for it to show up this early is it, it feels out of place
3: well there's some redundancies in this Dix picks because we have Cella blue and we're gonna have two other songs that I feel like serve the Stella Blue purpose in Grateful Dead sets, which is War Rats coming up and Morning Dew. And I feel like yeah. normally you have one of those songs and yeah. all three of them are here. And um, Stella Blue is the least well-served by its placement and ends up, I think, not coming out as well as maybe some of those other show-stopping ballads. Um, although I feel like if you would put War Rats warfrat in this slot it would suffer the same fate maybe not morning dew but at any rate still love stella blue just don't think it's a good first set song or or an early second disc track um yeah.
2: and we've talked a lot of trash about you know going from the 80s back to the 70s but you know we just had a really excellent stella blue on Dix pick six uh that i think is the best stella blue we've heard so far in the Dix picks run Oh wait yeah. This version, it, it it shocked me almost that it was a step back. That I would prefer an '83 version for over a '74 version, but I think they hit that '83 version a lot harder. And uh, yeah, cheers to the Brent era for for winning at least you know one
3: of these battles. Well, I, in a way, I mean, I think what I, what I said earlier about Road Jimmy could apply to Stella Blue in that the pathos of like the older Jerry. Playing a song like that, it, it can work to the song's advantage. You know, yeah. because he, as you said, it sounds better to hear Cello Blue when the band's a little tired. And then when you add Jerry's condition at that time, it, it he's does. He's tired all the time. He's tired all the time. And it does add <laughs> another layer of drama to that song. So to, yeah. so to hear him whip out that majestic guitar solo through that murk, it just lifts that song so high. And you just don't have that dramatic edge to this performance um because where it ends up yeah the next track is is jack straw uh and we were talking earlier about black wind being one of the great bob weir songs i think jack straw is my favorite bob weir song i'm gonna say that um and we had this discussion you know you mentioned our viewing party that we had uh for the halloween 80 show and, um, we were talking about Bob Cowboy songs and whether Jack Straw should count as a cowboy song because he is he does have a cowboy narrative to it, but, yeah, I feel like people use cowboy songs for Bob as a pejorative, you know, because mm-hmm. he has like a yeah. bunch of you know these like upbeat first set songs that all kind of sound the same, you know, me and my uncle, Big River, um, you know, Mama tried." El Paso, like a lot of those songs and because like most people are saying that they don't count Jack Straw as one of his cowboy songs and I feel like that's a compliment to this song because people Yeah, they just reckon, don't want it to count Yeah, it's like a cut above of you know those songs um, so I don't know, that's a nerdy Grateful Dead fan conversation uh, to have, probably right. doesn't really matter to anyone else but again it's a great song and I think this is a really great performance of it
2: yeah, I mean, people are like killing each other and riding on trains and jack straw. I feel like that <laughs> that that alone is enough to count as a western, or you know, sort of theme. Maybe it's like you were yeah. talking about with Peck and Paw that like it might be a modern western, but it's still a western. Exactly, it's got exactly. that vibe.
3: Yeah, it's like a it's a it's a prestige western. It's like Unforgiven. It's it's not <laughs> yeah. uh you know a revisionist know. It's not western. Ha- yeah, it's not Hang'em High. You know, it's not one of, like, the yeah. off-brand Eastwood restaurants. It's, like, Unforgiven or something. So yeah. people put it in a different category.
2: Yeah. I think this whole, like, the next three songs here, are all they're all from the September 11th show, and they're all very up-tempo and fast and well-played. And I think Dick wanted to sort of create, like, a little up-tempo mini-set in the middle of this Dick's Picks, which... You know, it, in general, it's it's on the, the sleepier, more abstract, more free, slower, uh, cosmic end of the dead. So this is kind of like a little break uh, where it's just like really crisply, fast-paced De- Grateful Dead songs. And if you listen to all three shows, there is sort of a running theme of the band joking about how jet-lagged they are. Like I think the Bob quote at the start of the second show is that it's all jet lag and Grateful Dead standard time zone. Uh so they were they were clearly uh dealing with sort of the after effects of flying over to England and then having to play at a strange uh time of night for them, I guess. But uh Well and then know, like the
3: roadies. The roadies were also putting all their cocaine into garbage cans. (laughs) Right, they didn't have their cocaine. It got all bonfired, yeah. Well, they they had to go find cocaine, you know, right after that. it apparently wasn't that difficult. But yeah, still, jet-lagged and trying to snort your way to alert, you know, to a more alert state of mind is not the best position to be in.
2: So this is sort of, this little run of songs is, there's, there's nothing super exceptional about it, but it is like a nice change of pace in the middle of this set where by the 11th, the band had kind of got its shit together and got on England time and sounded a little more uh, lively. So I think Dick put in this segment of songs, very short songs, uh, just as, yeah, that sort of different flavor.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, the songs we're talking about, we have Brown-Eyed Women and Big River. And uh, I have to say, like, you know, Brown-Eyed Women can be a song that I mean it's a song I I like. It could sometimes feel a little bit like a placeholder, like you're waiting to get through this song to get something to a little bit more something a little bit more interesting. But I love this version. I think it is really well played and, you know, like you said, I I think it does have a good energy to it. And even the Big River I like quite a bit. I in our outline you just wrote why for Big River. That was funny. I mean feel like dick must have really liked big river i feel like big river comes up a lot uh, yeah in in dick's picks um
2: and it is where i took my uh bathroom break on this set because (laughs) it, it was it was hard to choose these highlight sets make it a lot harder because he's not giving you those obvious bathroom songs but yeah i've heard a lot of big rivers now and uh yeah it's a good version of course but uh yeah you gotta go sometime one thing i like also in this uh sort of set of music and throughout the set it pops up in the brown-eyed women is that you get like some really strong phil backing vocals which you know phil takes a lot of grief for his singing and rightly so uh but that's another element of the dead that i missed as we were getting into you know later dead shows the last few volumes uh not having like phil May not have the uh, technical skills you would want in a singer, but he always has the enthusiasm, <laughs> and so uh, it, it's nice to hear that sort of, I guess, uh, throaty voice piping
3: in on these songs. Yeah, man. Like, man, good Phil backing vocals. That's not a phrase you hear very often. Like, I, yeah. I'm just loving. You're having a real Phil love fest this episode. This
2: is this is a Phil show, man, and I. I, I <laughs> I've said it before that, you know, we're hard on Phil, but Phil is my probably my favorite living member of the dead, so. Oh, me too. Me uh, too. I love Phil. I could Phil. be gushing about Phil a lot more in these shows, but it's it's much more fun to make fun of Phil as the killjoy of the band.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, Phil um, has like very minimal coolness or non-existent he, yeah. coolness, but I agree. He's my favorite living member of the dead as well. I love Phil. And uh, I love his bass playing, and yeah, this is such a, a great era for him, and even for his backing. I, I, and I'll I'll stand with you on his backing vocals. I'll yeah. even defend his backing vocals in this era. Um, so after that kind of more laid back part of the show, we're going to get into like a pretty great version of Truckin'. And this is another song that like sometimes I can take or leave. Um, but this era of truckin' usually opened up into, like, a pretty awesome jam um, and, where it wasn't just, like, this crowd-pleasing rock song that they would play. They were able to take it, you know, that groove and, and, and take it t- into, like, pretty cool directions. And, uh, you know, and, and on this version, this is from the 9th show, the September 9th show. It's, it's called the Wood Green Jam. And, uh, I mean, how would you describe it? I mean, it, I guess it's a little like other one ish, maybe. Yeah, I feel like they were thinking about going into the other
2: one, but they never quite get there. And it ends up being just, uh, like a, a bit of free improv. I mean, the, that, that, that style that you hear early on in this set and plan definitely crops up again in a lot of different places. And, the Wood Green Jam here, as it is named. Uh, so Wood Green, I learned, was the neighborhood, or is the neighborhood where the Alexandra Palace is, and it's the nearest uh, underground stop. So that's the reason for that name. I kind of hate that this Wood Green Jam, and then we're going to get to it, the Spam Jam at the end of Dark Star, are spread right. out as extra tracks. It seems really unnecessary <laughs> on this set, and it feels a little bit like uh, Dick got high on his uh, own sense of humor in calling the Spanish jam the spinach jam in the last volume, and got a little cheeky on this one as well. Uh, They they don't really feel like a huge break from the song that comes before, so I don't really understand why he split it off. Uh, It's just like a coda to truckin', really, that gets a little more free and gets away from the song structure. And I don't... The wood-green jam part I don't like that much, but there is a cool couple minutes that sounds like uh, Nobody's Fault But Mine in the at the end of the Truckin' track on the CD uh, that I like a lot. And the the actual song part of Truckin' is played super well. Like all those crescendos they build up to in a good truckin', they, they really nail in this version. So it's not, I think you know a, a a a top version of truckin but it's a it's a it's a very good
1: version
3: Yeah, and I feel like they played that song really well at this in this era. Like seventy three, seventy-four. You know, they would really build up a good head of steam in the song proper and then and I actually like the Wood Green Jam. I thought that was pretty cool. It's not mind blowing. I mean the, 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 the part that is tough about this about this progression, because we're gonna go from truck into the jam to Rat is I, I just flash back to the September eleventh show and I, I really like the wharf rat that comes out of the Sea Stones and the eyes of the world. And just that yeah. progression, I think, works so well. So knowing that that other wharf rat is out there just diminishes this one a little bit. And also, as I said earlier, it's a little weird to have Stella Blue and wharf rat on, on this same disc and so close yeah. to each other. Uh, it, it feels It feels a little redundant, uh, even though I love both songs just feels like you know you've got two songs that essentially serve the same purpose uh really close to each other
2: yep totally agree it's a it's a quality warfare, for at, but yeah it's the one place where the sequencing is a little strange and we didn't mention this up earlier but i kind of thought you know when you listen to it on spotify or a streaming service or back put the discs in back to back the in and the weather report suite are also a little similar sounding but in the old days when you were maybe not listening to all three discs in a row having those on separate discs makes a lot of sense. Uh
3: so yeah, I was going I was going to say like as someone who owns the CD set. Yeah. Um that came off pretty well to me. But again, those are at least on separate discs whereas mm-hmm. Stella Blue and Warfrat do fall on the same. They're both on the second disc of yeah. of the CD set. So you end up hitting them both. Um and there's really not like a great, I mean, even though trucking does turn, trucking does, does turn into a jam, there's not really like a great jam vehicle on this disc. Well, or, or, let it grow, I, I would say, is at this I, point. I suppose. A big jam, yeah. I, but I feel like that's like still pretty composed, you know? I mean, there is some, I, I don't know, just like where they're really kind of going out there. Um this isn't like the jammiest disc like, like dick's picks like overall i mean we're going to get into a dark star here in a little bit but um i don't know i feel like it's like fairly down the middle relatively speaking
2: yeah maybe they could have cut the that jack straw brown eyed women big river and made room for the eyes and the war fret from september 11th but you know yeah it's like i think hindsight is easy
3: I I mean like just from our conversation before I feel like he he could have utilized the fade in. I think that might have been the way to go with this. Just to get the, just to get the eyes of the world and the war rat in here. I think that would have been worth it. Even if it would have been a little bit yeah. weird to cut out or or do like a shorter version of Sea Stones like what they ended up doing on on the subsequent Dix picks. Um yeah. just to get that in there. Um going over to disc 3 now. Uh, starting off with "Me and My Uncle" and this was my bathroom song. Uh, <laughs> we've heard it a lot lately. We've heard it a lot, and it, it's again, it's a song I like. Um, I'm just tired of this song, and yeah. and there's been <laughs> there's already been a fair number of uh, Bobby Cowboy songs already on this album. Yeah, and I was like, I I just didn't really need "Me and My Uncle" at this point. Yeah.
2: I mean, I I think this version is actually really great, though. <laughs> it's definitely the best one we've heard, I think, so far in the Dix Picks. So I can see why you would include it. And also, you know, they've it's been on three of the last four Dix Picks. And I haven't done the math, but I feel like The Dead probably played it in maybe like a third to a half of their shows. So uh, yeah, the ratio is actually not that far off. <laughs> but yeah, this is like a... This is me and my uncle at its best, so it's it's welcome to hear that at least. Jerry plays some really awesome fills in it that I like a lot. Uh but you're right, there there is a lot of cowboy bobby on this set. And while it's a nice contrast, I guess, to you know, outer space cosmic jazz fusion dead, <laughs> it's like it's a little much in, in close. Close confines.
3: I think just like listening to the record, I was like, I was anxious to get to the rest of this disc because it just, there's a lot of meat on disc three. And I was just like, ah, I don't, let's get to not fade away. You know, I don't need the me and my uncle. But, you know, point taken, I think it's still a pretty good version of that song. Uh, so if you want to sit through it, I won't argue against it. Um, <laughs> so. As I said before, the next song is not fade away, and this is another song that we've heard quite a bit on uh, on the Dix Picks so far. It was in four, uh, and it was in six, and of course the the the, the Dix Picks four version is is incredible, and it, and the sixth version was was good too. I mean, the, the, so like this is another very reliable vehicle for them, and I thought this version was yeah. good too. I mean. I, I don't think it's my favorite version that I've heard so far in the Dick's Pick series, but it—it it, it certainly they—they they don't embarrass themselves on this song by any stretch of the imagination. I think they uh, still perform it quite well.
2: Yeah, it's—it doesn't feel like 16 minutes, and every time I listen to it, it—it's it, like over before I even realize it. But the flip side of that is that I can never really think of that much interesting to say about it <laughs> i guess the right right i guess in contrast again to the really jazzy cosmic improvisation you're getting in the other big jam vehicles on this set like not fade away is definitely going to be a straight ahead rocker sort of jam and that's what it is here it's pretty much 16 minutes of like lightning jerry uh and that's that's cool and it's a nice contrast to everything else but other than that, it's not a uh, not a huge version for me. I think we got a little like criticism that we didn't talk about the volume four version enough, which is it is an amazing version of that song. I think we were just running out of steam after a very long episode <laughs> about a very long Dix picks, uh, and so we'll we'll give it the belated nod at this point. But this version, you know, good but if I'm going to reach for one out of this recent batch, actually I'd probably reach for the volume two version. I love that volume two version with the going down the road, feeling bad in the
3: middle. My, you know, my thing with Matt Fade away is that I always enjoy hearing it. Um, and it's always well placed uh, in in a set, but like, it, I guess similar to what you just said, it's, it's like hard for me to think of anything to say about it. I mean, I, it, yeah. it, it doesn't, it, it rarely kind of extends beyond just being like a really fun song to hear. You know, like I got like, I'm, I'm often not blown away by it, but I'm but I always yeah. enjoy it. So like, I, I, I don't really want to criticize it, but it's also not something that, uh, I'm going to like force on somebody to hear. Cause I think it's like a great way to get into the dead. You know, if you hear this version of not fade away. Um, so that would be my thing about that. Um, Next, we get into Dark Star, and Dark Star at this point was really becoming an increasingly rare occurrence. And then after '74, it would become uh, really, really rare. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of like how often they played it, like once they got back from hiatus. I mean, it really seemed like something that they all but retired. Yeah, you know, once they came back.
2: And it's funny that they only played six in 1974, I believe, which I always thought there were more. And I guess it's just that every Dark Star they played in this era is pretty much considered a classic version. (laughs) Like It's got a 1,000 batting average at this point. Uh, And yeah, this is a pretty tremendous one and really fascinating to compare to some of the other Dark Stars we've heard so far in this series, uh, because yeah it, it, it has a totally different flavor I think uh, to either the yeah. the Dixpix 2 or the Dixpix 4 version. Uh, it is exceptionally mellow. and we talked about the jet lag before and to, to in, in certain places, I think the jet lag actually benefits the dead, particularly in this era where they are a lot more jazzy and laid back and have a lot of space in their music. And not just in the outer space sense, but in the sort of minimalist landscape that they were exploring at this time. And, man, this one just really floats along to the point that they don't even sing the first verse of the song until 22
3: minutes in. <laughs> it's incredible. And they never it's get incredible. to the second verse. <laughs> I, you know, I was right. listening to I it mean, and
2: I was like, are they just not even going to sing the first verse? Like, is it? Or did I miss it? Did I just, like, it's so spaced out here that I that i forgot that jerry sang it and to me it's even like i'm impressed that they remembered to sing it (laughs) because like did they they're so deep into this jam that it's it's kind of remarkable that jerry even thinks to bring it back to the point where he you know to a, a a landing space where he could sing the first verse over it it's yeah it's it's crazy
3: yeah 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 my assumption is that he didn't plan to wait that long he just got on a tangent and it just totally worked And I yeah. was like oh wait the way it's split up on the album is that you know he says it he, he says he sings the first verse 22 minutes in and then it transitions to like the spam jam which right. again is another one of those things where i mean should we just call this a 31 minute dark star instead of like a 24 minute track and a seven minute track i mean it feels like it's all one thing yeah but um yeah, I mean, if we compare it to the, to the other Dark Stars that we've heard so far in the, in the Dick's Pick series, you know, from the Volume 2 version, of course that has the tighten-up jam in there. That one feels, and we've talked about this before, and I, I like that Dark Star a lot, but it feels a little premeditated where you've got this f- kind of funky jam in the back half that really carries the song, and, and it makes it work, and it, it, it's super fun to listen to. I mean, that, that's... Maybe the most accessible Dark Star out of the three that we're talking about. I mean, it's a it's a very approachable Dark Star. Yeah, for sure. Then you have the Volume Four one, which feels like an epic journey into outer space. You know, there's like frenetic parts to that. You know, it kind of it, th- there's parts that like yeah that that feel very upbeat and supercharged, and then kind of slows down. And there's different sections to it. and has a it has a real narrative to it with a beginning, middle, and an end. And then you have this version and as you said it's it, it's much more mellow and it's spacier and I think that is a hallmark of dark stars of this time you know from 73 74 they do tend to I think have that feel uh, to them and I really like that part of it it, it it's not as um again it it, it 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 doesn't have the edge of the of the Dicks Picks 4 version it is more of like like stargazing music, you know, like laying on your back in a field and just staring at, you know, different constellations floating by, like that kind of more contemplative uh, type vibe to it. Um, but for me, it works beautifully. And I, and again, I love this era of Dark Star. I would say that I would probably give Dick's Picks 4, that version, the edge, just because it is such a mind-blowing version of of that song but um yeah this is really beautiful but uh
2: yeah i feel the same
3: Uh, it, is in- it is interesting, I mean, do you feel like, I don't know if they've ever talked about this, was the idea that this was just something that belonged in their past and they didn't feel like they needed to revive it? Or that once they moved into the drum space part of their sets, that that was the spot that Dark Star would occupy and so they didn't have to play Dark Star anymore after that? I mean, I wonder what the thinking was yeah, with kind of setting this vehicle aside.
2: Well, that the like drum space being what they would do in Dark Star, you know, it's coming down. That that comes a little later. I think it was just we've talked as we talked about earlier. The Dead really trying to put the past behind them and concentrate on new material, and maybe being a little burnt out on playing Dark Star every night for several years in the late '60s and early '70s, and being more engaged with playing or Eyes of the World or things like that, where they can explore some different flavors uh but yeah i think you know you're right that this is a more uniform version of dark star than the volume two or volume four versions and you know the volume four version might be my favorite ever so obviously this one isn't going to crowd that one out but i i like that it's a song that can be taken in all these different directions i appreciate that and i really like zoning out to this version it sounds that there's parts of it that almost that sound very floydy to me and maybe right. i doubt i doubt that was an intentional nod to being in england and at the site of this famous pink floyd show but it, there's a specific stretch sort of minute 17 to 20 where i think keith is still on the roads though it he's making it sound almost like an organ and it Reminds me of like a Richard Wright uh, Echoes sort of keyboard tone. Uh, but the, it is very much more in that sort of floyd stargazing tone that you were talking about. Then the other version of Dark Star, which have, you know, maybe a five or six minute stretch that occupies that same flavor, but then can transition into a feeling groovy jam where it's sort of blissful and peaky for a while or like a really loud feedbacky section. And this one, it gets a little feedbacky in the spam jam part uh at the end after the first verse. Uh but leading up to the first verse, it's just sitting in that that mellow cosmic zone that will be a few minutes in the uh earlier versions of the song, but they just ride it out for nearly half an hour.
3: Yeah, and I I really love I mean it you know, there's versions of Dark Star that like take you to the dark side, you know, or like threaten to take you there, sure. you know, or they'll take you there and back. And this is just like just beauty, you know. We're just gonna we're gonna be in the cosmos, and it's gonna be really nice the entire time. And um, I will say that as much as I love the the Dick's Picks Four version, and I would probably give it the edge. This might be the Dark Star I would return to more just because, like, if I needed to meditate, like, this is the kind of music I'd want to play, (laughs) you know. It has that quality to it. And it's really, it's, it's it's like a medicinal type quality. It's very therapeutic for your brain, I think, to listen to this kind of music. Um, Yeah. So we go from there to the morning dew and uh morning dew has the slot that Warfrat or stella blue would often go into uh the big dramatic ballad uh to, to help bring us home at the end of the show and um you know what can you say about morning dew that hasn't already been said especially a morning dew coming out of a dark star uh which yeah. is one of the you know classic grateful dead tricks it'd be something that they would do uh I mean, this is like one of the last times they ever did that, right?
2: Right. Again, it seems like something that happened a lot, but it's just like the versions that we know loom so large that it it, it seems very natural even if it didn't happen very often. So there were only a handful of versions like 72 to 74 and it never happened again, though they often turned up in the same set. Uh, but yeah, again, Grateful Seconds had a really nice page that talks about all the Dark Stars into Morning dews, And yeah, it just really sounds like a natural pairing. And it's a shame they didn't do it more. But, you know, it's special when they did do it. And it, that sort of meditative quality you talk about with the Dark Star, uh, you know, it's that's like the long fuse that burns to explode at the end of this morning dew really like it's it's a great emotional climax uh for the preceding, you know, 30 40 minutes that lead up to it.
3: I mean, since all three songs are on this album, I'm just curious like w- do you have a favorite, you know, dramatic grateful dead ballad, you know, out of those three? Yeah. It would It would definitely would... be Morning Dew. Okay. I feel like
2: Morning Dew hits more consistently uh than any others and it's also sort of my early dead bias i guess that morning dew was the one they played for the longest uh and i don't, and i love those those late 60s
3: early 70s versions i mean i would i think i like stella blue the most just because i think as a song um it it holds up the most and i think that just jerry's vulnerability really comes out in that song um and it doesn't morning dew as well. I mean Morning Dew is great. And I mean I bring up this question because I am a Stella Blue guy, but like Stella Blue is kind of thrown away on this Dicks picks and Morning Dew just shines so brightly and it has yeah the great guitar solo at the end and um you know this was their dramatic closer for many years and uh they had it down. I mean, they they knew how to nail this song at the end of a at the end of a show, and it it comes off really well. So I don't know. I mean, maybe I lean towards Morning Dew now, but um, I would have loved to hear Stella Blue in this spot, just as a point of comparison, because I think that that song, um, if it's placed well and Jerry's in the zone, it is one of the most transcendent songs in the grateful dead catalog um yeah just not on this particular album um and then we wrap up here with u.s blues as we said earlier from the record
2: in in true dead style uh so these this run dark star through actually not fade away uh, the whole disc as i said earlier is all september 10th uh but the the dark star morning dew of course was a natural uh that was two songs in a row from the from the set and then us blues was the encore of this show uh but dick very wisely his best like omission from this uh package uh cut the sugar magnolia that they played after morning dew which that morning dew is such like a perfect walk-off it cracks me up that they felt the need to play <laughs> sugar magnolia afterwards and we've talked about this frequently that we both like sugar magnolia and it's a great bob song and it's fun to hear but man they really did not need to play sugar
3: magnolia after this do
2: <laughs> so cheers to dick for
3: for chopping it off i mean i think in person they just felt an instinct that they wanted to let people on a, on an up note you and know? it's kind of what
2: u.s blues is so i don't understand why they needed uh, Sugar bags too.
3: I don't know. I guess they just I was like, Well, people like sugar magnolia, so we'll play that song and Yeah. But yeah, the US Blues here I think works really well as like that, you know, we're gonna play you out to the parking lot type song. Yeah. You know, like it's upbeat. Um it it has the feel of like the Chuck Berry covers that they were doing, but it just feels a little less tired, you know, because I think even yeah. by um I think even in the in the mid-70s, it was a cliche to play Chuck Berry songs live, as great as Chuck Berry is. You know, all the people that covered him kind of ran those songs into the ground. Uh, so to have a song that has, like, a similar feel to that, but is maybe a little bit more pointed lyrically, a little more contemporary feeling, um, and is a uh, Grateful Dead original song, um, I think it just works really well.
2: And also, it's a a regular encore in this year so fitting that he would cap off the this set with a proper u.s blues encore so yep and one more time to shout out phil uh phil sounds great on this u.s blues playing the lead bass belting it out in the background uh <laughs> cheers to phil lash
3: you 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 won this round phil he did man man phil getting tons of compliments Phil and Keith. I'm going to give a shout out to Keith too. I think this was yeah, a great Keith it is a show, great but you know, Keith we, set. but we miss Keith, you know, and we gave a lot of love to Brent. We love Brent, but you know, it's been a while since we were with Keith. I mean, cuz really it has not been since Dick's Picks 3 that we were with Keith cuz he yeah. wasn't around for 4 and you know, so it's it's great to have Keith back and this was a really strong Keith era. Um so yeah, I said at the top of the show that I think that, that this is one of my favorite Dick's Picks that we've done so far. And I I think it's my second favorite out of the first seven. Um, You know, a lot of people love Volume 3, of course. I love Volume 1. That was a big album for me. But I think uh, taking in the totality of the album and just how strong it is across the board, um, you know, it's really just behind four for me so far. The, yeah I think it, I, this is a really strong record
2: i think i'm giving it the bronze at this point four bronze? is my alt. Ulti- yeah the the, the what? four is my all-time favorite and i think i'm gonna sneak three in uh over this one but i love it very much uh yeah i mean it's just it, it i think it it represents this era way better than dick's picks volume one does and i like dick's picks volume one a lot too but it's just such an odd show to pick to represent 73 74 and this set sounds more like what I think this era you know it fits more with what I think this era sounds like in my head I do agree with you that we th- it would have been great to include the eyes or you know any eyes because <laughs> eyes of the world is so damn good in 73 and 74 and I'm not sure how much longer it takes to actually get one of those on a Dix but uh this uh this is a really strong set and really makes the best of a pretty uneven set of shows and turns it into something that is, you know, consistently great for, you know, three plus hours of music.
3: So coming up next is going to be Dick's Picks Volume 8, of course, which is the Harper College show, 5 two seventy. Yeah, a monster. Another huge classic. Uh, and, uh, I mean, this was already a legendary show before it was released as a Dix Picks record um and this just helps spread the gospel more so that's going to be a fun show to get into i feel like that could be a long episode we'll see i don't know if we're going to be <laughs> getting to the dreaded 3 hour mark well, we course. haven't gotten to 3 hours yet thank goodness but you know we'll see we, no. we could hit it with that one
2: well, maybe we can bring in uh, just as the dead brought in the new riders of purple sage for like an extra set in the middle of their sets. We could bring in like another podcast to play a set in the middle of our episode. We'll uh, we'll get the negotiations going yeah, on. Yeah,
3: we'll that. bring in like like, like broke down podcast. We'll bring you guys on. You could <laughs> you could do a set in the middle. We'll we'll, we'll space it out. Right. All right, guys. Well, hey, thanks again for listening. Uh, It was fun to get back to the 70s, fun to get back to the dead, and we're going to get even deeper into the 70s in our next episode.
2: Yeah, we're going to hang around there for a while, so, yeah.
3: (laughs) Looking forward to it. All right, well, we'll talk to you guys later. 36 from the Bald is hosted by me, Stephen Hayden. And Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman and mastered by Matt Dwyer. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Bold is RJB. <laughs>
4: Bowie, Dylan, Marley.